Territory, Oakland, California. <laughs> and we are both uh, volunteers at the Omni Commons in Oakland. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. We're talking about the autonomous space, the Omni Commons, located in so called Oakland, California, in the Bay Area. We're going to be talking about your fundraiser that's going on and about the Omni. It's an amazing space if you've never. Uh, got the chance to go there. Really encourage people to check it out. It's it's massive. It is literally a massive building. Uh, so let's just get started. How did the Omni start, and why did people decide to open up this amazing space? Well, it was back in 2013 when a bunch of different groups in Oakland uh, started meeting, looking for a space. The the first meetings were pretty simple. We would just go around the room, being like. Who are you? What group are you representing? And uh, one and one of the questions was, how much can you afford? And we just put that on a whiteboard. And you know, after a few weeks, it started to become a stable, <laughs> a stable representation of groups. And then we started seriously looking for this building. I mean, we had our eyes on this building in particular, just because of its unique situation. It's it's an extremely valuable building for Oakland. Those two collectives that kind of seeded this were Suderum and the Bay Area Public School. Bay Area Public School is not part of Omni anymore, but Suderum still is. This building was a lot of money, and it started off as a lease. And um, they didn't, was it 12k a month or something? It was 15,000 a month. Yeah. That we leased it, and we were everybody was just getting burnt out, just constant events coming through. I mean, you needed to to support a space like that. Um and. Then an anonymous person gave us money. But before that, people were in the community were pooling their own money as a loan. Right. When we bought the building, we spent another year just paying back those personal loans. Wow, so it was 15000 a month when you started opening? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. a lot. It was ridiculous. And let me tell you, it was quite a project to kind of maintain the um, activist spirit and energy in a project this big because it's constantly in danger of co-optation of being kind of watered down and gentrified yeah yeah it's kind of we're, we are really proud of how much how far we've come with this project and how we've managed to keep its heart yeah right i mean this building literally for people that have never been inside of it is two stories i don't know if you, i don't know if you know the herb is it three stories because there's a basement too yes three stories Three stories. Uh, there's, uh, you know, a working kitchen. There's a, a computer room. There's like a, a dance studio area. There's a huge ballroom that could, you know, be its own building in itself. Huge stage. Uh, there's like a library area. There's a, a downstairs basement area that's massive. 
I mean, there's just a lot of stuff there that for a, a lot of different groups, and we're going to talk about all that. But tell us, what was the process for such a massive project like that getting started? So you started to meet together. How did it actually go from people just sort of like dreaming this up to actually getting the keys to the place? Well, um, <laughs> gradually and then suddenly, because um, it was one of our members who... We were talking about whether, like, how much, to what extent we should name individual people here, because, I mean, our work is so relational, but also we don't want to just, like, gossip all of our comrades <laughs> to the world. But um, but we can talk about David Keenan, because, I mean... He has clout, yeah. He started to say DIY, and... No, well, I was going to say because he, like, already been in newspaper articles about talking about this. But um, he spent months negotiating with the previous owners of the building, who were a very odd <laughs> a couple of people who owned the building beforehand. We shouldn't talk too much about what about uh, bef- what happened before our group, mm-hmm. but they cared very much about this building. They understood that it was a very unique history, and they they didn't want to just sell it to the highest bidder. They wanted it to go to a group that was going to like, carry on the legacy. But that was a that was a long process of negotiation. Which, um, just to get the lease and also the option to buy was huge, which we did end up exercising about two and a half years later. When I look back at that time, <laughs> so I mean, just, just to be clear, I was around that time. Silver joined around 2016. 2018. 2017. 2017. So if you ask about the early days, it's going to be all me. And then, I'm... yeah, but, but I'm going <laughs> to, I'll try to fill in things that I think is very valuable that needs to be said. I mean, to me, I was blown. This 20,000 square, over 20,000 square foot space um, that is just all volunteer run can allow a wing nut like me to integrate and feel like I belong. You know, it's a collective of collectives, <laughs> like very different collectives to have ownership of a space. But like what that looked like was basically this building that was $2 million that in the early stages, it couldn't necessarily wrangle up needed support and an anonymous donor came through and donated a million dollars and then loaned the other million dollars. Which we're now dealing with now because they want it back. Mm-hmm. It was balloon payment. That's the way it is. Yeah, but so far we have paid them off in like over the six years. Um, it was originally a five-year deal, but because of COVID, they furloughed another year. So we paid back already $100,000. So for a collective space that's for the community, that's all volunteer ran, it's pretty it's true. So yeah, we owe nine hundred thousand dollars at the end of the year to this anonymous donor, and it's coming through. Like there's a lot of people that are showing up, that are supporting. Um, we have an amazing fundraiser working group, and then there's also a bunch of groups doing their own autonomous fundraisers. That people wouldn't even know for the Omni Commons right now. It's true. I'm like, I'm like, I didn't ask you to do this. How is this happening? I'm like, I'm like who are you? <laughs> I love you. It took a while to get here to feel that like comfortable sense of ownership in the space because that's new. Like who knows? You can just walk in and right away someone greeted me saying this building belongs to you as much as it does me. And I just like continuously tell that to anyone I bring in. And it's like a lot of, it's scary. It's a lot of responsibility, but like stewarding and caring for the space, like creates that deeper relationship with everyone else there. Cause if you're the only one stewarding 20,000 square feet, that's psychotic. <laughs> <laughs> but when there's like a bunch of us coming through, it, the weight has been 
I feel like I got wings, you know? Um. <laughs> Something you should know about Omnicommons is that we are not media savvy. <laughs> what? That's, I'm I'm the Instagram steward, so. It's <laughs> true. true. But like, I, I don't usually get interviewed. And um, just a quick plug in for me. I got plugged in because they're building a media lab in the basement. And I was like, whoa, that's perfect. Because I became like homeless back in 2017. And I had my sewing machine, my industrial sewing machine I brought from L.A. And I was like, I'm not going to give this up. And I just like sleeping in my car with it <laughs> and like took up half of my car. And I was just like looking up on Google. I'm like, where is the place I can like sew for free? And I need that for my livelihood. And then um, Noise Bridge popped up. It's a hacker space in San Francisco. And um, I checked it out, checked out the sewing It was a little dusty. And someone in there was like, oh, you sew? Dude, just fix this machine and take over. And I was like, bet. So um, I donated my sewing machine there and was really running that. But then someone was telling me about a sister hacker space in Oakland. And that's where my community is mostly based out of, at Sudaroom. I checked it out. And it's, it was like an even dustier place, but larger. It's less dusty now. <laughs> it's so it's so sexy now. Some people who I consider as my mentor there was like, oh, we're like in the plans trying to build a media lab in the basement. And that was a hoarder's dream. There was so much trash in there. It took hella long. To Not come. anymore. So hella clean up and take out. And then I brought in hella sewing machines, started ramping up a bunch of sewing, free sewing classes. And now I'm heads in deep. Now me and the Omni, we're just like, we are one. So to be clear, Silver, like, Silver has brought so much amazing value to this project, in, in particular because of the amount of connections that they make between different groups in Oakland. Like, like, it seems like every, every single day Silver's going to like 10 different groups and, and like telling each different group, oh, this is what the other people need, which is super important. It's that, that this is what I'm, an example of what I mean by relational labor and, um, and how I feel like the organizing that in Omni's culture is is heavily relational. Oh, I'm going to really cry. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, I'm a seamstress, so being the community weaver is natural to me. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I appreciate, like, Yara and the aspect of, like, there's, like, I'm working, like, that's my background. is like, creative sewing and whatever, like, art realm. But I'm working with hackers who are teaching me how to use laser cutter. So now I can, like, you know, laser cut my my patterns, which is way quicker. Or... Working with people at Counterculture Labs who, like, work with all these different, like, materials and mushrooms so I can learn how to make interesting dyes for my fabric. And it's because of, like, such a diverse eclectic group of collectives. I feel like a genius. <laughs> there are a lot of geniuses. I think this brings to me something that is unique about Omni is the level of success that we've actually had organizing people from very different backgrounds. But just like in terms of how they think about the world, like we, we have a building that has activists and mutual aid groups and computer hackers and science nerds mm-hmm. and film nerds. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, just can you name them all like from the beginning oh and, the, and the ones that left? I mean, it's not that many. It's like 20 total. It, it's a lot. Okay. I'm not going to name all of the ones from 2016, 17. Okay, how about just the ones now? Okay, well, there's Acton on Burba, which is Silver's group, which um, runs a farm share. CSA, yeah. What do you want? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I um during COVID, Omni Commons got shut down, and it was only open for, voluntarily. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just to be safe. Um, for mutual aid purposes, and I really helped out with. We opened up. I mean, I I was already kind of working with Food Not Bombs. That's their headquarters. Um, they serve 
hot vegan meals seven days a week at People's Park, 4 p.m. for anyone who's hungry. Like, that's been going on for 20 years. But a lot of the people that volunteer there, they're a lot older. So a lot of them had a shelter in place. And a lot of young people stepped up. So really, really throwing out food, not bombs. They got all the resources and plugs of, like, food um, income and outcome. And then um, North Oakland Mutual Aid Bird during COVID and started, like, really running with them. They, once a month, took in a bunch of donations from Temescal, which is where Omnicom is located at. It's kind of like an affluent neighborhood. And um, we would distribute up to, like, 500 hot meals, uh, hygiene kits, and ask from the unhoused community in Oakland. Uh, it was really important then for folks to receive support because sheltering in place means People who are in a house no longer can go to gyms to shower, can no longer go to libraries to, like, charge the phone and know what's going on out there. So, like, just being further dehumanized and a lot of people, like, stepping up. But I was doing that and someone was leaving acting on Verba and was like, hey, Silver, I'm about to leave my job. You Do you want it? And I'm like, I don't know how to surrender to CSA. And they're like, honestly, I see the way you move this space. You'll do great in it. Um, which is awesome because I've been doing a lot of dumpster, dumpster diving, like, like doing food justice and now I feel like I'm finally understanding what food sovereignty is like um so we work with local black and brown farmers um locally and then make these community support agriculture bags every Wednesday and 100% of our proceeds go into opening up black and brown youth for savings account in East Oakland and there's a bunch of other like these programs over there in education but yeah there's acting on verba food not bombs counterculture labs uh tutor room Community Liberation Programs, mm-hmm. Myriad Outreach Project, mm-hmm. the Chiapas Support Committee, the Zapatistas, mm-hmm. the Global Women's Strike, mm-hmm. Pseudo Mesh. Pseudo Mesh. They're building a decentralized internet. I just want to add, to, like, for people, Oakland gets a bad reputation sometimes for activist communities being full of conflict and drama, but no, that's not true. We love each other. And we love conflict because that's how you're able to create deeper relationships. We're not like, we don't shy that stuff away. We get deeper with each other because of conflict. The people really do love each other. Yeah. It's ridiculous. We take care of each other. Because <laughs> we need to. Mm-hmm. So how is Omni organized and run as a project? It sounds like there's so much stuff going on. You said there's so many different people running around with uh, different projects. How does it all actually kind of come together and, you know, just the nuts and bolts get taken care of and you decide all the basic stuff and the organizational things? How is that organized? I think, like, me and I will have different answers, but the way I understand how it's organized is they did a really good job before I came in in uh, creating processes and structure and then having it accessible and transparent on our Omnicomas wiki that anyone can go on. And also all of our um, decisions are made via a delegate that gets appointed to by um, their collectives. So, yeah, and they meet bi-weekly on Thursdays evening 7 p.m to 8 9 p.m if anyone wants to join it's open to everyone those are like where like larger like decisions are made and then for things to expedite we have a bunch of different little working groups there's the building working group who help like maintain the building because you know people will be tagging stuff on the building or whatever (laughs) um and then there's uh, the events working group, and that's where I kind of really plugged in and felt very involved with the Omni. So, like, half of our revenue comes from events. And, I, you know, people make event requests, and then I help them with walking it through. And then 
people like me who want to throw a fashion show, bada bing, bada boom, sign up, and you get an event store, you, you pay, and you can pay you market rate, or because it is a building that operates the way it does, we tend to be sliding scale, depending on what you can offer, be equitable to it. And then there is the fundraising working group, which we're really trying to hype up right now, giving money, and then the finance working group. But yeah, there's other things that like processes that like uh, we're trying to like definitely get great at and are open to, which is like conflict, right? So there's been an issue a long time in the past where folks might feel disempowered um, due to their like impressive, oppressive like mechanisms and a new group emerged recently called BOGS which is BIPOC oppressive gen- oppressed genders and women or something like that I forget what it's called BIPOC oppressed genders yeah and like this is a group I've forever been wanting to see happen it's been a forever bit in the talks and it's so dope that it's finally feeling comfortable enough to it's got approved as a collective so like yeah dealing with that and also like trying to deal with those yeah like there is there is conflict um, always and like having nice like systems where we can acknowledge harm and accountability I feel like that's like I'm very for- very fortunate enough that there's that people do put care and see folks who show up for the Omni and are like okay like let's like let's put energy into this and it's hard when you're asking people who are volunteering their time to save a building and also like live their life but yeah I think things keep emerging it's a creative space for like being open to like different systems constantly I think something to keep in mind for with Omni is that we, we have straddled a really fine line between, like, imagine trying to operate as, like, as an Occupy Oakland General Assembly while also owning property and also sustaining yourself as a business and actually applying for loans. Imagine trying to do all of those things at the same time. We're doing it. <laughs> you wouldn't think that it was possible, but. Yeah, it's really amazing. And the hybrid, I mean, just, just to be clear, like, the, the model that we sort of settled on is that the building is owned by a nonprofit corporation called the Omni Commons, and the board of Omni Commons has one one board member representing each of the member collectives, and they are accountable to their to their individual groups as to just how they represent themselves. So it's a, it's a little bit of a representative democracy. But the but the meetings in practice have um, the delegates meet twice a month. First and third Thursdays, everybody's welcome. And in practice, the the meetings have a culture of really re- recognizing broad consensus. That like in the occasional situation where like a proposal sucks, somebody anybody in the community can bring up a block. It doesn't happen very often, but it can, and we respect that. Like people value their personal relationships over parliamentary procedure, mm-hmm. and like really see that that's that's the heart of the project more than like you know counting the votes on any given resolution yeah going back to the Kimberly thing like um when you, you are acting in a way that doesn't feel like aligned with folks and they don't feel comfortable or safe like ask to take a break basically so prioritizing people's needs and what that looks like it's a thing we have a very strong safe space policy and always had from the very beginning Tell us about everything that's kind of popping off there. You've got a lot of mutual aid stuff. There's, you know, a hacker space. Just get into that. I think probably the heart of it is the food distribution. Food Not Bombs, the Free Fridge, uh, Acton on Verba, the groups that are really just making sure that everybody is fed and that the people who are hungry and the people who have time and extra food can actually 
connect with each other, which is, it's, it's just an important link in that chain of food distribution. Like, there, there are people who come in and out of Omni every day who just have the maps of the food networks of Oakland in their heads, and it's like, to me, those people are the true geniuses. They just know exactly who's hungry, who likes what in every single homeless encampment, like, know what bike route to take first, what squats to deliver food to. And Omni provides storage to kind of, like, enable these distribution networks to function efficiently. Like, there's there's also, like, on the supply side of it, sorry for the economics language, but, like, there's the people who also have the arrangements with every single restaurant and grocery store in the area and know exactly what day, what time to show up and get their food donations, um, often storing it in the walk-in fridge at Omni. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, like, they were basically doing the labor of, honestly, like, reversing climate change in a way because, like, these big multi-billionaire corporate markets are um, budgeting for waste. And um, a new law passed in 2021, the SB, don't call me SB, 14 or 16, where now um, the state of California is fining supermarkets for releasing that waste that's perfectly eaten food that's been budgeted because it's creating more green emission gas into our ozone layer. So literally we're doing that labor for free for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and Food Not Bomb, like, you know, they've been doing that all that work for free. And we've been letting them rent out of the Omni Commons for free. Um, Until the, recently. I mean, they got coins, so, you know, they're supporting us. It's mutual aid, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, no, they voted for that. They chose to, to give us oh, yeah. some money, which is dope. But I think it's important to illustrate that, that the, the amount that the collectives pay towards Omni, which does need a lot of money, but the, the amount is based on, on how much, what you need and what you have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That it's not just, it's not just market-based. Yeah. So that's Food Not Bombs. Food Not Bombs, really, really sick. I love working for everyone there. I, I mean, I'm, I'm screwing that. Um, so that elders, like, in their 90s, like, um, like throwing down really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes they, they're very particular. Like, we've been doing this for 20 years. And then I'll be like, no, nah, I want to do it this way. And it's fine. I'll do it that way. And then everything's okay. And then what's another really interesting group? Pseudo Room. I, I, that's my entry point. And yeah, that's a hacker space, and it's one of our largest spaces in Oakland. They are obviously one of the founders, and like right now, one of my favorite projects that they do is they get a bunch of like donated laptops that are broken, and people, you know, capitalism, people don't fix it. They're like, oh, broken material, I don't know how to fix, toss it Especially out. Especially around here. And they literally, like, you can go and learn how to fix a laptop, and then we just donate. There's a, a list you can apply to, and if you need a new laptop, Room. When one is ready, we'll get it to you. Um, I'm not quite there yet, but soon. <laughs> this one's limping along. <laughs> um, and then another collective is Chiapas Support Committee. That's also been around for like 20 plus years. Founded by Marianne. And they support the Zapatistas. There's Global Women's Strike. Can you tell about, talk about them? Global Women's Strike. I mean, it's a local chapter of a global group, which uh, was Based on the writings of Selma James, who was, who, who is a, um, wonderful feminist scholar who I wish I had read more. Unfortunately, I'm more, 
more towards the practice than the theory these days. Amen. Which is another thing, another thing about Omni is that like we're a lot of us are not well read. Like I just I remember saying to somebody the other day that like if given the choice between reading a book and just like visiting a friend in the hospital or doing a dump run or something, I would probably choose the latter. <laughs> but um and also just like in general my experience is that theory has trouble catching up with what we do. Yeah. <laughs> but theory also comes and rescues us when we need it. <laughs> and then there's um Community Liberation Project, who's a new collective. They're dope. They're they've been like every month teaching folks who wanna learn about like decolonization but also like we have to learn about what that looks like in history so i've been going to those <laughs> and like learning a lot how capitalism stuff those folks are a blessing like i've never seen a new member collective just completely gear all of its resources towards towards just supporting and maintaining omni and mm-hmm. introducing much needed structure mm-hmm. yeah they throw they really throw down and then there's pseudo mesh um they're cool too. They make decentralized internet. So if you want internet in your community, you can sign up and get a node and it explains to you how that's being set up. And surprisingly hard to get reliable Wi-Fi in a 20,000 foot square foot building. Cool. I appreciate those folks. Oh, and a new collective that I really want to like shout out to is the Village of Love. Um, they are really dope. They create resources for that unhoused community in Oakland. So it's like a drop-in center. And also every single day, they are, they have a NA or AA you can drop into, which is... Alcoholics and Narcotics Anonymous. Which is important for me because I struggle with those things. And it's like, oh, cool. I don't ever have to leave the Omni now. <laughs> Everything I need right here. Um, and another space that I kind of mentioned that I helped build out was called the Media Lab. But we teach free sewing classes there every Tuesday. So if you want to learn how to sew or fix something, pull up there. That's not a collective, but it's just like an Omni operation thing. And another one is the free store. Um, that's open from Wednesday, 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. to Saturday. And, like, hella affluent people donate stuff, and a lot of people get to benefit from it. Because, you know, fast fashion, that's the number two most wasted uh, material in the world is textile. How much of your clothes right now came from the free store? Everything, everything. <laughs> Buying nothing. We don't need money. We have everything we need. Um, and, like, Omni Commons, like, portrays that. I see the clothes all over Oakland now. I'm like, I know where you got that shirt. That's I know where funny. you got those pants. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then, um, miss anyone else? Oh, married outreach pro- programs. I mean, they're kind of an umbrella group. It, it's kind of like the people who manage to be good at the paperwork of actually maintaining a 501c3 become the umbrella for all the people who are just like actually trying to do the work and not trying to worry about what the state and market expect of them. Yeah. And that's, that's, Pretty much what married out. I mean, like their umbrella for, I think, building community collective, the, yeah. the meals on one wheels program, mm-hmm. the farm workers, mm-hmm. group oh, yeah. mm-hmm. support for farm workers. Just really great people. I mean, just an example of how we figured out a division of labor that kind of works between the introverts and the extroverts. Um, and then one last group who's like another OG in the Bras Counterculture Lab. Um, I don't know. Someone told me in there that they're trying to find the cure of COVID when they closed down. I don't no. know. I got confused. Okay. But they have full on labs. You want to do like lab 101, learn how to grow my sleeve machine, all that stuff. They're a little bit of an incubator for a bunch of different like biohacking groups, but like much less money than some of the other stuff that's happening out in the Bay Area where they're like actually people getting funded for million dollar corporations. So I mean, I'm sure somebody, some of them wouldn't mind. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's more grassroots in my experience. Yeah. It's people who are 
interested in mushrooms. There's the radical mycology group. Um, there's the open insulin group. Mm-hmm. Um, the real vegan cheese group. There's these people who are trying to like breed this special kind of yeast that can um, basically create cheese out of nothing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And we're trying to activate every damn square foot. So one, like, there's some common spaces that are going to stay common spaces because they're very active in those ways. But there's some areas that we're trying to activate. So like, new collectors like DSA are acquiring and East Bay um, Democratic Socialists in America and Palestinian Youth Movement. And yeah, dude, it's exciting. It's pretty much like somebody walks into Omni on any given day and suddenly your week changes because they're like, hey, I would like to find space. And you're like, we would like to help you, I guess. I'm going to put down what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it happens. There's space so we want to give to everyone. So. And this, this, is one of those, this is one of the points of struggle for Omni is always just finding finding out more spaces and how to use space to like fit as many things as can, pop, that can happen in this one building. Mm-hmm. It starts to feel small after a while, which is why you should give us so many millions of dollars that we can get more in buildings. So how have things shifted in recent years, originally being sort of a post-Occupy project to now in 2022? I think we're more rooted. We're more principled and experienced. I'm not trying to throw shade on my comrades, but it's much easier to talk about racism now. Amen. <laughs> it's just, it's in general easier to have accountability. I feel like there's a lot less drama more than ever i feel more hopeful for omni than ever it feels like we're all just pointing in the same direction yeah and i just want to like like say <laughs> and be transparent <laughs> um like yeah i joined in half like you know yeah it was part of like from the occupy to to now and then for me i joined halfway and for me feeling a lot of like openness to like learning and the mentorship but also like i got ideas you know and then sometimes feeling my ideas, yeah, not so uplifted sometimes. And um, we we do honor like like experience, but also I'm just like, no, wait, but this building also belongs to me as much as you. What does that mean? What does that look like? My I want my ideas to fruitate like, as much as yours because I'm I'm supporting you as much as I'm supporting you so much. So let me get some support. And um, fighting for that for a long time, and it was really really hard. People were like. Like, the homies, I kept trying to, like, wrangle in, like, yo, come through, like, let's do this. But you're crazy. Like, that, <laughs> you're never going to have a say. Those were tough times. Those were tough times. Omni has overcome some serious obstacles. And it was, it was like, pointing out the, like, being like, yo, homie, you're operating, like, kind of, like, there's, there's, um like, an individual. I'm not going to say their name. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, like, feeling like they operate, like, everyone calls he identifies as an anarchist. Everyone else identifies as an anarchist, but I felt like he was like, like the cop of the building. And um, I think most people who have tried to run an autonomous space are familiar with this dynamic. Okay, cool. And um, it's just really funny because there's like the one room that he needs a man cave. It's just like a room where you can see basically every room in the whole building, or the major rooms, which is like suit room and the ballroom. And I would call that the Panopticon, like his office. <laughs> and um, I would, like call him out. I was like, dude, I feel like you make a lot of people uncomfortable here because a lot of people have voiced that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, like, what are we gonna do about that? And like, how, what does it look like to stand up and advocate for yourself? And I struggle advocating for myself, but when a lot of people are sharing the same struggles, it's so much easier to advocate for this thing. 
love that because it like gave me um, a voice to like stand on. Honestly, there was a point where I was gonna give up and be like, Dan, no one, no one's gonna get me. <laughs> no one gets me. No one trusts me. Uh, I, I think that was the reality. I think that he wanted me to believe. And over time, like people were very supportive, and it's just like letting me to like trust people who I think I don't know. And like, we, like going back to like this very diverse group, like from age to class to gender to race. Yeah, you just gotta give them time. And I think I used to operate in a very like scarce like time. Right now, model, and a lot of us do. Like, if this person isn't banned in the next month, I'm not gonna come back here. And I, I'm also like very anti-ban culture. <laughs> but this is a tough conversation. Um, but after over the course of like a year and a half. <laughs> don't even <laughs> whatever um uh, this person was asked to leave by someone else yeah it was really interesting to see like what followed and what became of that a lot of other people who would create blockages and gatekeep to me what that's how i interpret it um access to the space started to dissolve because like that role entails a lot of power and then when they, when that dissolved hella people joined through i was like what the f- dude People are down to join and be a part of this. It's just that, like, but then there's also people who love power. But, yeah, um, just trying to be open. To, we all love power. We all, have, we all have power, exactly. Just trying to be open to, like, the fact that we all, yeah, can embody white supremacy, whether you're white or not. But, like, being critical of it and having those difficult conversations because <laughs> I'm hurt every day. I'm sensitive. I don't know. <laughs> Something I've learned is that you really have to have a good cultural immune system in your project you need you need to be able to like quickly identify anti-patterns and things like you got to be able to say i know where this is leading and we're just going to stop this here and it's also really important to like like if you're if you're really getting advanced in this you you got to be able to target a behavior without targeting the person i mean at some point they're one and the same if the person really decides to dig themselves deep into it Mm -hmm. but like the better you get at it, the earlier you can you can kind of like point people towards the direction where you want to go, and then like then then you have kind of a culture that reproduces itself. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've had that in the past. I feel like we have it again, and I, and I, I can't say it enough. I feel more confident than ever that Omni is is a force of good in the world. You know, one of the things that's happened to the barrier that most people are aware of is just massive gentrification. And I know the neighborhood that the Omni is located in has definitely changed. How has that affected the project? Well, probably one of the most material ways it's affected us is just, like, some of our best people keep having to leave the Bay Area, just get forced out. Like, like I just go, I run through my head of all the people who we could have held on to if, it, if housing was affordable in Oakland. It would be a different city. It's definitely been a sizable amount of people that have had to leave because of that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Honestly, it's been the rest of the country's game. Yeah, it was really interesting because I joined the Omni when I was unhoused. And honestly, it's because the Omni got housed. Um, one of my mentors, like, when uh, COVID hit and there's like, no access to anything, got me a beautiful spot and it turned to another community space. But it's been a couple years later. I don't make enough money and it's hard to keep up with this lifestyle in Oakland. And um, I can't afford rent now. And I'm like, looking at other places we're, 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 we're starting to pay people this is a big thing yeah yeah we tried so long to be the volunteer culture volunteer run and people still say that i think out of habit even though we're trying to like no no no, we want to pay you now mm-hmm. 
and it's not always clear where that money's going to come from in the budget, but like my opinion is just that like we got to start spending money on ourselves. Mm-hmm. Not even me, like I haven't paid myself so far. Yeah, you But have. but we yeah. got to spend money on the people who make this thing what it is. Yeah. And I uh, see that's the complicated for myself. Like I finally they I were know, like I, like for the first time I'm like, okay, am I going to build Omni? And I'm like this feels awful. I love this building. I've been volunteering forever. Like, why don't I get paid? Like, this is ridiculous. We're trying to save the building. But also, I need to survive. I had been begging them to send us a W-9 for months. <laughs> um, but, like, yeah, so that's, like, one aspect of it. Um, and it feels very complicated in that area because at the end of the cul-de-sac where we live is a Section 8 house. And um, those people are really being uncomfortably, like, feeling pushed out. They, those, to me, are, like, our comrades, too. They, like, watch the block. They know what's up, what's going Absolutely. on all the time. More and more so, it's becoming affluent into Mescal. And I, you know, it's, it really sucks because, like, their demands on what they want. They don't want the Omni. Some of these people um, will make a lot of, like, city complaints. And um, yeah, our neighbors do not want us to be there. And they they spread such ridiculous rumors. Like, when we moved in, somebody was there like, I heard Occupy was going to... It's gonna take over our neighborhood. How do we stop it? Yeah, yeah. You mean the the neighbors, the the people down the street you were talking about on section? No, we're, we're talking about the people in the condos. Yeah. And the people. And the condos the, are more recent, right? The family houses. Yeah, those are more recent. Yeah, like there's like actually there's just more and more condos being built. So if this building gets sold, we we damn well know this building's gonna turn into condo, mm-hmm. which are like mostly sixty to seventy five percent vacant. <laughs> In Oakland. Yeah. Um, oh, so the people in the condos are like, we don't like the Omni because... Yeah. Yes. They're too trashy. Too trashy. It, it, it's another line that we have to walk, like, tr- trying to have, like, rad events yeah. and also not get the cops called on anybody Yeah. or noise complaints, which will threaten us, which is, I mean, we're property owners. We are invested mm-hmm. in this spot, in this building. And they also hate the fact that we don't have a manager, like, so... Um, <laughs> right. We have a free town fridge in front of the Omni that, like, there's so much food that comes through because we work with so many mutual aid groups that they're able to just continuously stock it. And it's easy in front, like, on the sidewalk. In front of the sidewalk, yeah. And um, we made this really cute enclosure, so you have a lot of dry food in there, la, la, la. Silver built it. And then, <laughs> and then um, you know, people come in and like, I see beer in the fridge. Who do we have to talk to to maintain this? And I was like, who's your manager? I'm like, we don't have a manager. <laughs> And she's like, well, what does this look like to like have a calendar? It's like, do you want to join the Town Fridge uh, Signal Group so we can talk about this? And you can like empower yourself to participate and not just complain. Yeah, no, nah, it's just funny because I think like, uh, I think just like all the people who have joined the Omni who felt disempowered, it's the same reality for people even with money. They're just disempowered. And I think the only way they can feel empowered is through money. And um, there's this thing called the Temescal Business Bureau Bid. And, business uh, Improvement District. There you go. You know, they're doing some interesting, cute stuff, which is funny enough. Joey, who's part of the Village of Love, is the director for, and they hire, like, in this He's bid, the director of their operations team, not of the entire bid. Right, my bad. So so the folks who clean the streets and, and get paid using bid money. And the people who clean the streets in the neighborhood are doing two jobs. They're formerly car street folks, mostly, and they're also helping like watch the block and um they are your call program if you want to deal with this de-escalation because there are a lot of folks who are unhoused and like when your leases are unmet yeah there's that can happen that's normal yeah i recently sat in one of those meetings and our council member dan cab 
was there, who clearly has a lot of resources, because Oakland, the way it works, our budget, only seven councilmen can decide for half a million of us how our money's being spent. All of us in there was like, yeah, we don't want to call the cops, even though half of our budget goes into the police department. We want to, like, invest into this thing that Joe is helping, like, facilitate. And then, like, Danny Hall's like, oh, we don't have money for that. But we like, don't have enough money for, uh, we have not enough cops. We, like, we have a lot of money in that. Like, it's like, no one wants to do that. Why aren't you listening to us? Here's <laughs> the thing about Joey Harrison. If people talk, people talk about alternatives to police. How are we going to, like, where, where's that going to come from? How's it going to put? This is exactly what he has been doing for years and years and years. Like, be the people who, who you can call instead of calling the cops if you have a problem with somebody. That said, a lot of the times people are still just, it doesn't, it doesn't help if you're just going to have an alternative where somebody says, okay, who, who do I call when I want this person to go away because I don't like how they look. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. But you get, but you got to have a person who knows when to hang up. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. And As opposed to, oh yes, we'll be right there, sir. Yeah, and so this meme that was that was for crime prevention, like that was the topic, and like a lot of people were like, damn, we call that number and you guys don't answer all the time because it's not well funded, first of all, and also like, okay, you're frustrated by this, then let's do something about it. Like, how do we empower each other to take action? And I told that lady, I was like, let's start a group, let's start our own group. <laughs> like, your business here, and then everyone else here is a business. Let's start a chat, and then what does it look like to support each other? And that's, yeah, it's hard. I want to interrupt and mention something that is extremely valuable at OmniCommons building. And one of the reasons that we looked at this building to have our project in is that it has been in continuous operation as a community center since the 1930s when it was built by a garbage workers union hall. And that mean, that was before that there were any kind of building codes and, and all of the, the requirements that they have now for, for assembly spaces indoors. And it means that we're able to operate legally and have mass assembly legally without being required to have all of the modern things like an elevator and sprinklers. That said, we would love that. We would love if somebody gave us that money, but realistically, it doesn't happen. We have to accept for now that like fire safety means being extremely alert. And wheelchair accessibility means having all of the important services on the ground floor. Like most modern buildings had to have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in the past couple of decades to add this kind of modern infrastructure, essentially to be new construction. And for most of them, that's the only way that they can legally pass a fire inspection and be able to operate at all. And that's the reason that so many things are expensive and cost so much. That the cost gets passed down. I mean, not to mention that the fact that most landlords are landlords. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's the other thing. But this is, this is really why Omni is a jewel. It means that like most of the things that they will hold over you in order to get rid of you don't apply to us. Yeah. And like, damn, I'm sorry. I feel like back to the gentrification thing. I feel complicated in the sense that I also think we are participating in gentrification some of us yeah but like 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 the building right like what like so it's complicated like are we supporting like the folks that are here before are we not so like but which is i think i'm saying that because i want to be critical i don't know Mm -hmm. um all i know is that since i've been there it's been exponentially getting more (laughs) bougie there's a whole foods there's a whole foods now they built a whole foods two few blocks from us yeah and they literally raised the houses across the street from us and built another condo. But one thing that's funny, though, is that, like, on on top of that Whole Foods is a luxury condo, and on the very top is a rooftop garden that's about an acre large, and they grow about a thousand. Of course. Oh, they're a thousand 
they grow a thousand pounds worth of produce every week to donate to like Monster Housing, Poor Magazine, a bunch of mutual aid stuff. So, so damn, you know. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know what our role right now is in gentrification. We just know that the space, and these, all the should we have inside, it's, tra- it's mostly free. It's for everyone. Um, and the rich, I don't know. <laughs> I think Omni is is a site of folks in Oakland trying to figure out how to actually do multiracial multiracial organizing. That that is one of the many things that Omni is a site of. So tell us about the current fundraiser and. How can people donate? Where do they go? And what's the goal? Well, we've got a GoFundMe. If you just go to omnicommons.org, it'll be right there on the front page. We we kind of got a little ambitious, like go big or go home. We're asking for the entire principal of the debt that we owe, which is $900,000. We're, I mean, it would be great if we raised that much, and maybe we will once we start doing our media campaigns. But if we don't, we've still made a chip of that principle, and it means that getting a loan will be more within our reach, which, I mean, that's our struggle right now, is that we're just, nobody said yes to us yet. Nobody said no either. (laughs) But, um, yeah, we're trying to refinance. We bought this building with a loan, and it was a bridge loan with what they call a balloon payment, which just means we want our money back at this date, and you got to get it from somebody else. Yeah. And that balloon payment is due at the end of this year. But we are doing surprisingly well. We've we've really shored up our cash flow. We've we've built a bunch of new spaces that we can that we can put new groups in. And we've had a lot of folks joining. We've the the events working group is just rocking it. Yeah. And yeah, so that, those are like the avenues that we're going through refinancing, fundraising. Um one thing that I really inspired by from the early history of Omnicom is how like how the people were just donating their own coin to save the building. So like I would like to like do that also. Like yeah, we can get a loan from a bagel. Let's get a loan from the community. What does that look like? So if you got some homies, let's go. Drop some money. Our, our Instagram has a link tree for all these things for you guys to like plug in. Um, it's at omni.commons. Um, Omnicommons.org. And that's our website. The worst case scenario is we lose the building um, in December and we have 90 days to vacate it. Um, so that, that, you know, but also circle of life. No one lives forever. Whatever. But also this place is, it gives me life. So. There's nothing like this place in the world. Yeah. Like, pe- people understand how unique this place is, how how important it is, not just to Oakland or to the country, but really, there isn't any place quite like it. Yeah. I, I feel really rich, even though I don't have any money, because I'm part of this space. In the parking lot with these bars I got Popular juggernauts with flames till your dog is hot Naughty Norfolk, I can offer when we walk about Them freaking crackers, trackers try to snatch us for the auction block Maroon views, the goons use it, and when that beat drop I do lose it three times though, I'm two Rubik's Cube I'm so rude, like gentrifiers coming in your neighborhood to catch your attitudes Feel like 1992, but it's 2016, get you with plenty 16s I just came front on these teens, when I was younger, older heads They tried to run on my dreams, some reach out with S's Some with blunts with names, I couldn't understand The contradictions come from these things Some toes go blind for the nose, some noses rock gold rings OGs got nose fleas, wiped it up with they sleeves Couldn't have nothing in the park 
Fuck your 5 was the thieves Quickly escaping in the Jeep deep resembling zoos Cause them young bulls want llamas hop like Zaba Mafu In the basement be the bangers fool I can teach a thing or two in the thatch Riot like a frat boy in a pumpkin patch One for the revolution, two for the flow If the break boys are dancing, you should probably go If the MCs and DJs be rocking to foe And the craft writers getting up, you already know And yo, one for the revolution, two for the flow If it's C12 coming, you should run, run, Joe Matter of fact, one fast, bro, don't run, run slow They wanna get you in the cage, since you already know Be in the city of the swing, sardines and poking beans They took rights of Jackson City, an unfortunate thing Shorties and most, see they blessing stats from under their nose I said it's ciphers, dropping sessions in the B-girl post They're winning VA, like Jewel's beef shimmery for memory Degrees 180, fist up for India Kanga, fist up for India Baby Virginia pics are so shady, they perpetrating they stuff They said they beat the right maroon from out, they greatness See all their pocket break on circumstances We throwing capoeira, it's not just circle dances And all the workers glancing, that old side eye Go out for fries and get killed by drive-bys And five guys and five die from zombie not robbed But it's kinda hard watching property loss And can't get a job, that's why I make this hip-hop my part No alibis, damn it, they'll deny my props Like Miss Patty Pies, I'm never satisfied Chunky arm banging on the table, break your database Simmer got the baddest lace, in the Audi Dodge Straight laughing, hardy hard, just before I roll up and toss out the Molotov One for the revolution, two for the flow If the break boys are dancing, you should probably go If the MCs and DJs be rocking to foe And the craft writers getting up, you already know And yo, one for the revolution, two for the flow If it's C12 coming, you should run, run, Joe Matter of fact, one fast, bro, don't run, run slow They wanna get you in the cage, since you already know One for the revolution, two for the flow If the break boys are dancing, you should probably go If the MCs and DJs be rocking to foe And the craft writers getting up, you already know And yo, one for the revolution, two for the flow If it's C12 coming, you should run, run, Joe Matter of fact, one fast, bro, don't run, run slow They wanna get Hi, this is Tupac from uh, New York City Ice Watch Awesome, well thanks for taking the time to talk to us. So this started because you were on CNN recently. Let's just kind of start there. Well, CNN had reached out because I'd been quoted in in a few of the um, articles at the beginning of the crisis. Uh, so we took the interview and I took it as an opportunity to talk about how abolition ties into the migrant crisis and immigration in general. It was great to be able to squeeze out a, a couple references to defunding the police in a positive light on mainstream media for once. It was a great discussion. You know, I loved how you took the, the Democrats to task and the mayor of New York, which we'll get into. Let's start off. Just tell us about New York City mm-hmm. Ice Watch. What is it and what does it do? So there's been uh, multiple Ice Watch groups in New York City over the years. And in the fall of 2020, uh, a bunch of people got together and kind of decided that there needed to be a sort of citywide one for the neighborhoods that weren't really covered by Ice Watch groups in Sunset Park and in Jackson Heights and Queens. And we've been kind of rolling along ever since. Uh, I've, I've found myself in the position to be a kind of a spokesperson for, you know, these group of community members that, have, you know, got together responding to ICE incursions, but also doing things like mutual aid during the pandemic, uh, dealing with asylum cases. And we've expanded our reach to essentially be sort of an alternative to dialing 911 when there's an emergency. You know, people call us when there's police brutality, when there's when they're getting evicted, when people are overdosing, when there's, you know, domestic violence incident that people want to intervene in but are afraid to call the cops and so on and so on. You refer to this as a crisis. Talk to us about how this all started for you all. And, you know, what were the initial responses? I have to disclaimer by saying that, you know, migrants have been getting, arriving in the shelter system since earlier this year. 
But uh, starting in the beginning of August, when Greg Abbott decided to really, you know, make it a thing for political points, uh, the, the Ice Watch Network and, and various other mutual aid and rapid response groups, uh, you know, we, we kind of make a coalition that goes by the mutual aid collective. But that's how we release our statements. And Ice Watch is just one of the groups, one of the in that abolitionist network. But uh, we've heard about buses sort of like going down the rumor bill, rumor mill, and we're like, hey, you know, there's one coming tomorrow, and you know, we showed up, and more people showed up, uh, and then oh my god, there's another one coming tomorrow. Word on the street is there's one coming tonight, and we just find ourselves in this situation where we'd be there trying to greet them, and then so would <clears throat> the office, uh, mayor's office of immigrant affairs, Moya, uh, representing the mayor somewhat, and at very early on. It was clear the difference between how they were treating uh, migrants getting off these buses from Texas to the way that we were doing it. Um, and I think once Eric Adams realized this, this is the beginning of a crisis that that's sort of been spreading from the border. It's really been spreading from South America coming north over the past decade or so. You know, his, his people literally shoved uh, the abolitionists volunteers out of the way for a photo op you know get, grabbed one of the food packages that we had made for the migrants you know the mayor took a photo with with, with that piece of, of mutual aid and then just left and uh, they've been sort of you know dropping the ball and or following the lead of, of of the mutual aid ever since so i think a lot of people might be asking themselves like in terms of scale like how many folks has greg abbott sent to new york it's in the low five figures at this point and i know the mayor was quoted as saying that that it, it could reach you know six figures eventually it definitely shut down the shelter shelter system um you know we had a right to shelter in new york city which means that if someone showed up to uh the shelter intake system which is just this labyrinthine system of intake offices throughout the city uh, and gets denied somehow, you know, that, that technically broke New York City law up until now when the mayor was just like, all right, we give up. Uh, there's too many people. Uh, so this sort of crisis has broken uh, societies along the way, you know, um, I have family in, in Peru where a lot of uh, Venezuelan migrants have gone uh, over the past decade, and, I, and I've seen the change. My, my, my family has talked about the changes there, where people end up being indigent on the streets, having to resort to whatever they can do to survive, and it becomes a sort of like ish, hot button issue about housing and crime and all these other social ills that get exacerbated by that. So, you know, uh, in talks that we've had with, with a few people in power that have been willing to listen, you know, I, I say it's, it's not like New York is going to turn into Los Angeles. It could potentially be much more extreme, much quote-unquote worse uh, than that, and, and unless the system is is willing to admit that housing as a commodity has failed all of us. Yeah, it's interesting this is happening as New York, like other big cities, of course, is experiencing this housing crisis, but also, um, you know, there's a lot of people angry about, you know, rising evictions. There's been uh, sweeps of encampments of houseless folks. The people have been resisting. Talk about kind of that dynamic of this kind of perfect storm. Yeah, and, and during the CNN interview, I shouted out this, the Sweeps campaign and uh, meant to shout out Brooklyn Innovation Defense and other groups that have been building, you know, either building tenants associations or, you know, defending uh, homeless encampments, uh, street encampments throughout the city uh, because they've been demanding since Eric Adams came into office and 
not way before since the pandemic, uh, that, you know, the rent's got to get canceled. Mortgages have got to get canceled. There needs to be some sort of community controlled housing. And now we have this influx of, of, of people that really could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Um, one thing that I, I didn't mention in their interview that, that I have noticed is more people have been talking about squatting in non-activist spaces than have in, in the past couple of years. Uh, and I think that if, if there isn't some sort of increase in public housing or, or publicly subsidized housing, whether it's buying out hotels or all of these empty luxury apartments, you know, Billionaire's Row, the, that, that's 57th Street where they have those super towers that, that sh- cast shadows across Central Park, the dwarf the Empire State Building. Half of that's empty. All these $25 million apartments. If those don't get sort of repatriated somehow to the public, uh, we're looking at a decentralized rise in squatted buildings, much like we saw in New York in the 70s. And if it gets somehow coordinated, then whew, that's going to be interesting to see. Can you say anything more about just squatting right now in whatever form is happening in New York? Well, I can, I can speak generally to uh, across various movements and organizations. You know, obviously there, there, there's kind of private, quiet squatting, the, the kind that, you know, I'll ask my coworker about, you know, we'll have a conversation about, you know, where am I going to retire to? And in the conversation, it pops up, oh, yeah, my cousin tried breaking into a house and living there. And I'll be like, oh, well, how long did she last? And he's like, oh, yeah, she's still there. Um, and this is a totally non-political person, right? Uh, and then there's sort of more public building occupations um, that we've seen or, or eviction defenses. And the truth is, I think, volume, it's, it's a question of volume and numbers. And we saw this through, uh, I, I kind of came of, of political age during Occupy Homes, where, you know, Minneapolis was, was taking over a variety. I think they won something like 11 to 18 uh, buildings out of X amount that they took over because it's a, it's a complicated process. Um, but, uh, you know, and obviously like there, there have been building takeovers that have been public in New York, like the 1083 gym the last, last summer that the police came in and broke up. But, uh, you know, if you look at certain, uh, eviction defenses, like, uh, I want to say not Dean street, but, uh, it might have been another one on Dean Street, but there was one in, in the cold of winter this January where a, a black homeowner was essentially had their deed robbed by this this slimy landlord. And there was a straight up brawl on the uh, stoop of that brownstone and, and a constant presence over the course of two weeks. And, and eventually, you know, the authorities realized that they were in the wrong and, and that family is still in that house now. So it's, it's a bit of a question of volume. Uh but it's something that, you know, almost anyone can do. Not everybody can take part in a, in an uprising summer constantly like uh, 2020. Not everybody can, you know, spend all day in an autonomous zone. You know, pe- people who have kids or jobs, families and so on can't do that. But everyone can talk to their neighbors and keep an eye on the block. And, you know, the NYPD and the LAPD themselves have admitted they can control a 10,000 person rally. It's what they train for. They can't control 10,000 person or 1,000 person protests at one at one time that by their own admission. Your thoughts on how uh, Eric Adams and sort of kind of like the, the Democratic leadership has responded to this crisis? Bringing it back to the, uh, the migrant crisis, uh, I mean, uh, we were worried that this would be something along the lines of defunding the, the police where the city council would sort of fall in line. And certainly 
there was an element of that. But two weeks ago, there was a city council hearing where a lot of people that originally we had thought were towing the, the mayor's line came out and said, like, this, this is outrageous. There's no way that you can hire the contractor that built the Trump border wall and hire them to build a tent city in Orchard Beach. Like, that's morally repugnant and also physically impossible. Um, I think that, you know, the day after they announced the Orchard Beach tent camp, it, Orchard Beach flooded. Then they said, oh, we're going to do it in Randall's Island. And then the day after that, Randall's Island flooded. Uh, <laughs> uh, but then you had, you know, certain city council people, borough presidents, uh, other elected officials, and then the larger nonprofits that had partnered with Moya and, and with the city kind of came out and said, hey, like we, we put in like 50, 60, $70,000 getting, you know, essentials for for these migrants and the city still has not reimbursed us which was sort of like our big oh oh snap moment where you know clearly to the extent that the mayor and and office of immigrant affairs has tried to play divide and conquer between you know autonomous groups doing mutual aid and larger more established nonprofits, they dropped the ball doing that even so that's the stage where we're at now um and you know like i said on on the show like our line is open because we're we're firm in our abolitionist beliefs, but we also know that these are people's lives. Um, we we can't announce that November third there'll be a public event uh, in the Bronx. We're hoping to have a town hall style event, and and the city will be invited to sort of see if we can move forward with some sort of solution. So that that's where we're at right now, and, and nationally, there's other things happening that complicate the uh, matters you know unfortunately biden invoked um title 42 i believe it is so we had the first batch of venezuelan migrants getting turned away at the border just last night um while everyone is sort of you know today uh congress just subpoenaed trump and so people i think our, our liberals are celebrating the democrats today biden is doing exactly what trump would have done uh and would have been called out for so that's where we're at Biden's term started off with the horrific images of Border Patrol beating Haitian asylum seekers. Uh, the way that the right frames, th- frames this is that there is, you know, this huge massive crisis on the border and that Biden is just like allowing everyone to come inside. Explain how you see the situation and what's really going on. The situation is borders were a sham from the start. I mean, we believe in decolonization. Um, there is more than enough in the United States to go around for anyone that wants to come to the U.S. So it's just morally repugnant and economically does not make sense to, to turn away, uh, migrants. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fear of demographic replacement, that, that white fear, uh, which extends, you know, to, to non-white people as well. Um, and, you know, I'm calling out other Latino people that have, you know, come before and, you know, are starting to hold these sort of like, you know, Republican style beliefs about immigration. Uh, it's nonsense. It's nonsense. Um, this country would fall apart, first of all, uh, without people coming through. The uh, first thing uh, all of these migrants say, and I mean literally right off the bus from Port Authority when, when I've driven some of them to, to shelter intake is like, hey, uh, this is what I do. How can I get a job doing this? Where can I get a job? I'll do this, but I'll also do this if it means getting paid. I mean, it, it, it is a, the most common question. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a shame that there's just, you know, people willing to do things and want to be, you know, quote unquote productive 
but are getting, you know, spat upon for, for wanting to do that or, or denied opportunities to be able to, to build our society in a, in a on paper legal way. Republicans don't want to talk about, you know, regime changes and, you know, so-called Latin America and everything's pushing people to, to migrate from climate change to, you know, neoliberal policies. That's never, of course, part of the question, the discussion. Oh, never. And, you know, the, the, the kind of bougie Latino political class has to set aside uh, space for these sort of like anti-communist um, Latino immigrants. But, you know, here's the funny thing. And, and, and it's really rather ironic, but also, you know, I, I think in terms I've been doing this long enough where I think of like, a, how do you organize in terms of decades? I'm not seeing individuals as individuals, but in terms of their lifespans and their descendants and their ancestors. Uh, so this is my commentary on it. But, you know, when these, this particular batch of migrants that, that ICE watch often, m- most often deals with, I mean, we deal with all sorts. There's, there's, you know, Haitian, uh, Creole speakers, there's Colombians, there's, there's people coming in from all over. But the vast majority are, are Venezuelan, uh, many of whom have left not just for economic reasons, but because they, you know, engage in some sort of direct action. Uh, Including building takeovers, uh, and are facing political rep- repression from the, the Maduro presidency. And I tell them two things. When they ask me for a job, I tell them in a year you'll be making more money than I do. Uh, and I, I also talk about how, <laughs> were we not receiving them, uh, in 10 years, them or their children would be wealthy Republican donors. Because the, the, their story that they would tell their, their children would be, we escaped communism, we arrived in the United States, we made our money, the American system works. What has happened is these people have gotten screwed by both Republicans and Democrats, and it's become apparent from day one when, you know, they, they expect one thing and instead are being sort of just literally booted to the street by the city into the arms of this, you know, group of anarchist, abolitionist, mutual aid groups and are, are kind of being shown a, a, a different way of of being and it's i just imagine what would have what would be different if the cuban exiled political class in the 60s had encountered this when they arrived in the united states i mean literally so much of american foreign policy and american domestic policy would be different right now and as difficult as this is i am i'm sort of seeing it as a sort of like sign that like hey we are where we are supposed to be greeting these people in their their situation it is really ironic, like you said. I mean, these are people from Venezuela, this punching bag of both political parties, supposedly this place of, you know, massive repression, which, I mean, as you pointed out, in some cases, you know, there is a degree of uh, truth there. But yet, because of the color of their skin, because they're this boogeyman of both parties, they're demonized and treated this way. Yeah, and the, and the other thing on, on the flip side of it, you know, uh, a, a lot of comrades that that do mutual aid work are sort of used to dealing with people uh, in that are dealing with a lot of issues um, out on the street, mental issues, economic issues, and so on and so on, and are sort of almost taken aback when you, you have the, you know, you know, there there is a this thing where charity gets a uh, mutual aid becomes charity, you know, to a certain extent, unless you really really get to know people, and you know these. We, we don't call them migrants. We call them the, the compas. It means compañero. means friend. The compas are just really sharp, smart people. Like, they've gone through an almost indescribable challenge. I mean, think about the worst road trip you've ever taken times 10. Uh, and they're also, like, work together in Venezuela, you know, organizing and whatnot. And they're, they're just, they're just sharp. I mean, they were going to see 
incredible things organizing wise. They're already self-organizing in, in their own separate group. Um, you know, the Ice Watch hotline has gotten calls, you know, from people in Texas, uh, coming over to New York, uh, because word of mouth has spread that far about this, you know, secret hotline number. Uh, so it's an amazing thing to see. And, you know, as, and as a, a Latino who often laments about how we are, and how much better we could be. Uh, it is, it, it is great to see that as, as painful as it is to see them get kicked around and seeing them literally on the street so often. Well, one of the things that you were pointing out, I thought this was really, uh, an awesome point that you made in the CNN interview. You were talking about how, you know, the solution to this crisis is really the solution that a lot of working people are looking for that are affected by evictions, you know, uh, the lack of affordable housing. Uh, being harassed by the police for being on the street. I mean, the fact that people need to get in the homes that are vacant right now that are in the hands of the capitalists. I don't know if you, if you want to talk about that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. You know, I was, I was prepping for this interview by watching, you know, summer 2020 footage and it's just like, you know, now that we're in the middle of a, a, a bit of a public relations response to the abolish the police, police movement where people are suddenly freaking about Freaking out about levels of crime that don't even come close to matching what, like, me as an 11-year-old taking the subway in the year 2000, uh, dealt with. Um, just laughable. Uh, you know, it's like, well, we, we got, we got to clean up the streets and, and, um, you know, this is our chance to call them out. That's not what you were saying in the summer of 2020 when, you know, you were quit, when, you know, the powers that be were quaking in their boots over challenges to their power. Um, and it's it's not just you know property damage or or stuff like that. It 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 is you know any money taken away from the neoliberal elites is physically painful to them. You know, <laughs> you know my dad was a New York City taxi driver. He always tell me about how how visceral the reaction was when you take money from a rich person. Uh, you know, we have to stand firm in in what we believe. We we have to not necessarily segment ourselves. You know, it's okay to represent, you know, your crew, your demographic, your, your, your neighborhood, but to not get stuck necessarily on issue based things and be like, listen, the the solution is the same. And, uh, you know, this isn't going to get solved until the NYPD gets defunded because both parties love funneling money to the, the police, no matter what it is. It could be money for the parks department. They will find a way to make sure that, or the NYPD will actively loot the parks department and send their representatives and be like, hey, give that money to us so we can put security cameras. That's what that money should go to. You know, they did it with, with the, uh, traffic, the, uh, street crossing guards that used to be, you know, Department of Education employees. Now they're NYPD employees. And if we call it all out as being a scam, everyone, you know, n- not every, the average person on the street, and, and this is why I took that CNN interview, and, and it bothered me that people were shocked because it really isn't that hard to relate to the average person. The average person may not care about liberation in those words, but they do care about not being a sucker, and they hate being scammed. And what we're, we're being scammed by these elites into giving up all of our resources and working for them and giving up all our you know physical property and our health and our bodies and our sense of autonomy to, to their ends. And that is what it all ties down to in the end, regardless of the issue, regardless of whether we're talking about, you know, uh, uh, people that have been house, you know, houseless in New York for several years or, or people that just arrived in New York a week ago. Uh, cause those divisions can be easily exploited. 
I saw it, you know, going into the uh, security line at, at the 30th Street shelter intake. You got a line of migrants who don't speak in, uh, English and are being screamed at by security, you know, black security guards in English. And then you have other black ho- homeless residents of, of the shelter kind of yelling at them and getting mad at them for not knowing that, oh, it's a moving line. You have to move. You could use that as an opportunity to drive a wedge between, say, uh, black and Latino, right? Or, you, you know, you can find commonality. And what has happened is that you'd find people in the shelter system that speak English and Spanish that realize that, you know, they were both in the same boat, boat together so that when one of the migrants was tased at the shelter, you had, you know, a U.S. citizen, English, Spanish dual speaker of that shelter helping to translate for for the compas before you know Ice Watch could even get there and and trying to soothe the tension between uh, black and Latino, which Eric Adams is absolutely going to try and exploit. Um, you know, it, it, I, it, it is the unspoken strategy of of, of a lot of these people, and, and as you we've seen with how the Los Angeles City Council is like. Took the words right out of my mouth. I was just going to say, yeah, we got a front row seat to that. Oh yeah, I mean, listen. Eric Adams, uh, uh, I was about to say Minister of Cultural Affairs. Uh, what's the word? Uh, Commissioner of Cultural Affairs. Laurie Combo used to be the uh, the city councilwoman representing Bed-Stuy and actively voted, you know, African-American woman, voted against giving undocumented people the right to vote because it, quote-unquote, would steal votes from African-Americans. It's an outrageous, violent thing to say. So this is where I think Ice Watch comes in and the philosophy with Ice Watch. It's, you know, we have, we have a comrade, a white comrade, bringing around a black woman from, from Bed-Stuy who is cook, you know, wants to cook, uh, food for the migrants. So it's, it's serving these, these South American Latino migrants. And, and that is the sort of little, it's not a little effort. It's a lot of effort because you were going around buying, going to the supermarket once a week, cooking vast amounts of food and having to find a driver. But, you know, I, I think to comrades, they may not be aware about the, the ethnic tensions or, 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 or things like that. That is a very, very big to have a, a neighborhood, you know, uh, African American woman cooking for South American migrants or it would be the case vice versa as well. Um, cause we talk about the, the, how many Latino men in particular are, are flocking to the Republican party and to Trump in particular. And it, and it's an expression of those sorts of like crabs in a barrel. Well, they got their crumbs. Why aren't I getting my crumbs mentality? Uh, and you only know how to figure that out if, if you're not from that particular demographic. And I have to teach people, uh, uh I, I can always tell who, who has not knocked on their neighbor's doors. By what they get offended and shocked by, uh, you know, I, not to bring up Kanye West, but you hear that, you know, uh, and you have to learn how to talk to the, the people. You have to learn how to talk to your neighbors. You know, Ice Watch has these once a month chill outs where it's like if you're white and you're not from New York City, you have to bring a person that's from here to get into this party or, or else you, you got to donate a bunch, you know, because we don't want to become just another club of people that don't get the history of the city that they're in and have no sort of continuity of, of timeline. Right. And who don't, who don't see people as migration patterns, right? That that's what decolonization is about. So sort of is recognizing your migration patterns and where you are in your family's history and in the history of the society. And how can you be politically effective through those lines? We've been talking about, you know, how the Democrats have 
weaponize this and also there's this pushback after the rebellion and like weaponizing you know crime and all this stuff I mean, from your perspective how do we push back against that relationship building relationship building relationship building canvassing 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 uh one thing ice watch does is and we had a bit of a, a changeover this past summer um we we ha- we have child care at every at every event. Um, if you want to know how to stop constantly having to have accountability sessions and worried about you know people getting mad if someone said something, bring in parents who do not care and do not have the time for like petty stuff like that. <laughs> parents want to know how they're feeding their kids. Are the kids going to be safe? Are the kids going to have a, a a prosperous life? And they have two hours a week to do that. And so the job of someone that that is you know truly an active activist and organizer is like, all right, how can I build this infrastructure so that a nine to five, you know, parent of two caretaker of an elderly person, um, in their two free hours of, of time a week can be an effective abolitionist or effective housing activist, right? You know, what canvas so that you learn how to listen to people. And, and how to express your ideas, which you can only do effectively if, if you listen to how people talk. Um, and that's, and, and spend time doing that. You know, if, if you're not spending time doing that, I, I don't know what you're doing. Debating books, maybe, is, doesn't interest me. Doesn't interest most, most, most people in Ice Watch. There was obviously like a lot of pushback to, um, DeSantis sending people, uh, to various places. Do you think that, that strategy of, you know, quote unquote, trigger the libs by, you know, fucking with these people's lives is going to backfire on them or that's just not how the Republicans think right now. And it's just all about the moment and that viral clickbait and stuff like that. Well, the ba- no, I mean, uh, Republicans are, uh, I, mean, I mean, the essence of whiteness in, in America is, is, is preserving that through, through cruelty. Uh, and you can believe, you know, and I've canvassed like, white urban dwelling tea party years before at, at, at the beginning of it. Good people or polite people, I should say, but believe just absolutely stupid things about anyone that isn't white. I mean, you got people that told me with a straight face that everyone who arrives in America crossing the border gets a free car, you know? Uh, I have no, you know, that the, the stupidity will never end. Um, if, if, if it's not checked. Uh, I, I do want to go back to the previous question because there's two, uh, an anecdote that, that I feel gives a concrete example of like what happens when you canvas. Beginning was sort of do patrols to, to see if, if ICE, you know, this is during the Trump administration, if ICE was showing up, if you'd see an ICE vehicle and, you know, we'd be there and, and we'd be there to protect and, and alert the neighborhood, which, and what we found out quite very quickly, uh, well, not quicker for some than others was, you don't find out if ICE is there by patrolling the neighborhood, especially if you're not from there. Uh, you find out by talking to people and canvassing everyone on their way to work at six in the morning on the subway. I remember one morning we canvassed for two hours and found three either black or Puerto Rican elders that were pro rioting, one of whom had been at the looting of Soho. Uh, those people aren't on Instagram, you know? You, you find them through knocking on doors in the, in the hood, basically. And, and another example, you know, I was talking to a street vendor from Oaxaca that said, like, 
I, I, I don't understand people smashing windows at a, at a protest downtown, which, you know, some people would autom- automatically write, write that off and write that person off for that. But then you're talking about housing, which is how we got into a conversation with this person. And it's like, oh, yeah, I would totally steal a building. I did it in Mexico when I lived there, you know. Um, so, so that, that, that is why that is important and, and harnessing that power is, is, is important and, and, and is really, when, when you do that on a wide enough scale or, uh, 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 then whether a particular cruel thing that the Republicans do, whether that backfires or not, almost doesn't matter because what matters to the colonial classes is, is, is power. It's not the righteous indignation of, of, of a people that, that are, that are suffering, um, it, it, it is building power because that is the only language that, you know, white supremacist capitalist patriarchy understands. Tell us about how to support Ice Watch and anything else that you want to plug right now. Ice Watch is on Instagram at NYC Ice Watch on Instagram. Uh, the DMs are open. If there is an emergency, if you spot an emergency in New York City or the metro region, hit us up. If you want to volunteer, hit us up. If you want to donate, it's NYC Ice Watch on Cash App. There are also other organizations on the Instagram that are tied to that you can donate to as well. Um, you can drop off uh, as of now, you can drop off clothing and things to Judson Memorial church. I believe it's 10 to four on Mondays. Uh, that information will be on, on the Instagram. If it isn't there already, there are also other locations in the boroughs you can, you can donate to. And, and the important thing is whoever's listening to this, if, if you're in the, in the Metro region and we can connect people to, Groups in Jersey or Westchester or Long, Long Island, and whatnot. Give the Instagram to your street vendor, your Uber driver, the, the guy, the, your bodega guy, because that—that's who needs to hear it, and you need to be the point person between that person and Ice Watch, if if need be. Yeah. And I'm at Twitter at People's History if you want to see more crazy decolonial rants. Okay, once again, we're back for another week. We have a special guest. Once again, do you want to just introduce yourself in case anybody has not heard of you? Hey, what's up? I'm Marcella Onyango. I'm a comedian and a columnist now. Mm-mm, clap for me. I'm doing great. I <laughs> Tell mean, us not, about I'm it. I am literally falling apart, but I am <laughs> writing stuff to get people angry still. Um, I have a weekly column. It's on Shadow Mag. It's based on my newsletter. And every 
week, except for this Sunday, because I'll be in Lake Placid. I tell you how to feel about the news from an anarchist perspective um, or how I'm feeling about the news from an anarchist perspective. It's mostly me rambling and complaining about how everything is evil and we should just all take a nap. But, you know, it's fun. You should read it. Awesome. We will definitely link to that in the show notes. And great to hear that you're working on that. Sounds great. And It's really fun. We're going to dive into some news stories right here. The first off we're gonna, thing we're going to talk about is that this is something that came out in the New York Times and The Guardian and a couple other places, but I found this just horrific. Um, it's a new report that says more than half of U.S. police killings have been mislabeled over the recent years. Here's a quote from The Guardian. It says more than half of all police-involved killings in the U.S. go unreported with the majority of victims being black, according to a new study published um, in a peer-reviewed journal. And it just talks about how, yeah, there's just much more than the three people per day, which are already being killed by police that are happening. And they're just not entering into the databases. Here's another quote. It says in the U S between 1980 and 2018, more than 55% of deaths over 17,000 total from police violence were either misclassified or miswent underreported. Um, that's a massive number, 17,000 people. And, I mean, obviously there's a reason that these are being misclassified and not reported. Yeah. Wow. I'm sure it was a mistake. <laughs> or they just forgot. Um, no, this is, like, truly deeply disturbing. It's like, you know, one of those things where, like, you already know cops are bad. And then when you know something is bad and then finding out that it's worse than what it was, it's like, hmm. This is not right. So it's like, uh, no, this is frustrating um, to even know and read this. I mean, understanding that the United States is already like, if you didn't know, pretty racist. Um, and just like the fact that, as you mentioned, like black people are already like over policed and killed. And then now knowing that like they're even like the amount of people that they're saying they're killing, they're like undercounting, which is like the opposite of what the police always does. They always want to look like they're doing more. Um but it's just like a reflection on the fact that like a state that is going to kill you is also going to lie to you about killing you. You know what right. I mean? Mm-hmm. Like no one yep. who's like fucking around is going to be honest about like they're fucking around right. us. You know what I mean? So uh, I was going to say like a lot of this, this is one of these like factoids. I think it's repeated a lot, but every single time I say it, whoever I'm talking to is shocked to hear that this is true, but cops aren't actually ever required to report killing someone. Like that paperwork. Yeah. The Department of Justice never actually requires police departments to report how many people they kill. So if we think about this, the police are able to run around, shoot people, write whatever story they want and not tell anybody. And then if someone decides to complain, they get to investigate themselves. What other job lets you do that? I mean, for real. A job like, with a good deal and wants you to keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, let's just even aside from police abolition, just for a second, right? Like the concept that cops get those kinds of working conditions and yet constantly complain, constantly complain. Like they constantly complain about how dangerous their jobs are. Their jobs have been getting safer while normal people's jobs have been getting more dangerous for the last 30 years. Probably because we've known this. Well, and we've known this, right? We've known this, like as OSHA regulations get kind of pulled back. Cops get more and more and more protection. They get higher and higher, higher pay because of this mythology of the danger of their job. And Mm. here they are murdering people by the score, literally, Mm. in Mm. a situation where they never have to report it. Listen to this number. 
It says uh, 30,600 police-involved deaths recorded among men and 1,420 among women between 1980 and 2019. And of course, I'm sure that number is much higher. In actuality, this is what this report is reporting the amount at. But I mean, that's a staggering figure. Over 30,000 people over, you know, a 40 year period. And it's probably significantly higher. So right. like, the methodology that was used here is actually really fascinating. So because there's no data set, it just doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, researchers for years have been going through and picking through open source data, news reports, independent reports that they're getting from the ground, like all these things, right? That means that there's still a large amount of police killings getting missed. Because I will tell you where I live, cops kill people all the time. And you might hear about it on the news for about 10 minutes, and it never even shows up in the newspaper. It's so frequent. This actually points out, it says, coroners are often embedded within police departments. It can be disincentivized from determining that deaths are caused by police violence. Also, there's thousands of people that die in jails and prisons and detention facilities all the time and those can you know be ruled not caused by law enforcement yeah oh my gosh that okay so y'all you know what just hit me like right now okay i'm a little high but to be honest this you know what just like hit me like really hard right now this is like imagine you're doing your job and the most of your job is just hidden like so this Mm -hmm. is like like most of your job like most of the things that you're doing are hidden yeah and then we like pretend like this is your job. So the part of your job that people see is like a lie. That's like not your actual job. Like that is their job to kill black people. Like and this that is what they call social peace. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is what's called social peace, right? Like I, I literally, I was talking to someone about this this past weekend, right? It was just like, it was at an event. Some like relatively normie lady came in and was, you know, we were talking about police abolition and she said, well, well, what happens when the cops are gone? Like who, how it's just going to get really violent. And I'm like, there'll be more black kids. City you like, live in, I'm like, yeah. the city you live in is one of the most violent cities in America. And we have police. So that's obviously not solving the problem. And in reality, what's happening is that more people are getting locked up, getting out, not being able to get jobs, getting desperate and having to end up breaking the law again to feed their kids. And that's what we call social peace. And, and that's the better outcome. That's what happens when people don't get killed by the cops. Yeah. The good, a good days when a cop doesn't do their job. So it's almost as if their jobs shouldn't exist. But just like to <laughs> highlight, like, yeah, the purpose of the job is to kill black people. Like, if you're hiding the fact that 60% of the people, what is it, more than half of who they're killing, 55%, are like predominantly black people, like, that is your job. Mm-hmm. Like, stop lying that it's not. But it's all like this mental, like, jujitsu that they like. They like to play on us and they trick us and they're like, oh no, here, they're saving a cat. Like, oh, look at them. Like, no, they're not. Like, this is like their job. And I, I don't, like, other than maintaining, like, the American plantation, which I'm not the first person who said this, there's multiple people who have said this, the police have no purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that and, like, to make a white lady feel good. Like, that's, that's like, and I was like walking down the street. Sorry, I'm, I'm going to go on a little rant and then I will stop. I was going walking down the street in my neighborhood, which is a predominantly black neighborhood. It's East Flatbush walking down the street. And this, my neighborhood is pretty over police. There's like a cop on every block. And I was walking down the police station and like around that police station, there were more brand new buildings than I have seen. They were literally building buildings for gentrifiers across the street from the police station. So it's like you have created a playground for white people. And then when you want to expand the bounds of the playground, you just put little cops around, you know, they're like little chess pieces. It's wild. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking about 
you know, elements of this during the last episode. We were talking about um, the way that the wealthy are sort of consolidating or talking about consolidating into these more or less armed communities as a response to crisis. Right. And how there's been this massive explosion of things like uh, building underground bunkers in Idaho for like billionaires. Right. Or like very wealthy people talking about building islands in the middle of the Pacific or shooting themselves into space. And like the idea that you build condos across the street from the police station is another manifestation of that. It's just overtly using state violence to protect your wealth and privilege as opposed to covertly doing it by building a wall and hiring a security force. Yeah. Right? And the, state violence do it. Yeah. And rich people now have their own private police too. Yeah. Yeah. So like they're doing that. If you ever find yourself in the North Bay, go to, Marin City, which is where uh, Tupac grew up, the housing project that he grew up in is still there, but there's only one road. And Marin is obviously a very wealthy enclave, like north of San Francisco. But there's literally a police station on the road that goes up to the housing project that's, like, right in front of it. I mean, it's, like, very apparent, like, why it's there. Yeah, he would have not been happy with that. He would have not liked that at all. Like, <laughs> no, would have not, not been a fan. No. Not, not one bit, not a Yoda. Right. <laughs> not a fan. <laughs> Don't like. Yeah, and, and just one more thing for me on this, but uh, we've uh, mentioned this study several times on this program, but there's another one that came out in 2019 where it stated that when put together, men of all races, uh, police killings are the sixth leading cause of death for men ages 25 to 29. But just to give you an idea of how racialized that is within that block, this new study is saying that uh, black people are 3.5 times more likely to be killed by police than whites. So it just shows how racialized this violence and killing is, but also it's something that's killing lots of people across the board as well. I mean, like, do white men know about this or are they like, oh, somebody <laughs> needs to tell them that. Do they know? Like, cops are killing them too. Like, I think it depends guy, on like, what white people, people it is. Yeah, yeah I, I guess that's right. true, right? You're right, you're right, you're right. Wait, so which white people like to be killed by the police? Which one? Tell me. <laughs> which white men specifically like to be killed by the police and would be against police killings? Well, and I think what's what's fascinating about this, you know, we, we talk about this kind of social warfare, right? And I mentioned the idea of social peace earlier, but we really need to, you know, I, I say this on the show frequently, but what would this look like if we described this happening somewhere else in the world? Right. What would it look like if, you know, in, you know, let's say Canada, we found out that cops murder 17,000 people that they just didn't bother to tell anyone about? We would that invade would be, Canada immediately. The government would get overthrown. There'd be protests everywhere. Right. Like that kind, that scale of extreme violence is one of these things that I think is increasingly apparent in America, but it's not increasingly new in America. It's something that's existed in various forms throughout time in our history, right? But it's something that I think in this fight against policing, we have started to see a little bit more clearly, right? But what is this except a low-intensity conflict, right? Like, if we were to describe this anywhere else in the world, like, for example, there was an episode of Popular Front recently where they were talking about Brazil, and they were talking about the Brazilian police in the lead up to the election and how they sort of invaded neighborhoods with armored personnel carriers and shot people. What else is going on here? Maybe not in the same level of concentration, but, but what else is happening thing. here? It's the same yeah. thing. Asada Shakur literally said propaganda is for the white people. 
for mm-hmm. black people, the police is enough. And like she literally said, black, as far as she's concerned, the police are an occupying force yes. in black neighborhoods. I would go further than that and say the police are an occupying force, period. Yeah, yes. specifically in black neighborhoods because they're the most exploited, they're the most oppressed, and the people who are the most exploited and the most oppressed are more likely to rebel. Let's be real, right? Like if you're more unhappy, like it's much easier for you to be like, fuck this shit. You know, there's nothing here for you. White people, I mean, all can be like, I can still go to like Whole Foods and like, <laughs> Like, you know what I mean? So, like, they get that aspect of it. But, like, yeah, of course, black people are the most of a police and they're the most murdered. So they're definitely occupied. But, like, the state itself is an occupying force, right? Like, this place called the United States is an occupying force. It shouldn't exist. Well, and states in general are. I mean, like, yeah. if we, you know, I talk exactly. about this a lot, too. But if we really look at what the state is, let's take the American context, right? We have all of these political norms that supposedly guarantee some kind of version of political autonomy and all of these things that somehow guarantee, quote, freedom and all this stuff, right? We learned during the Trump years, most of that really didn't mean anything. It was all Mm -hmm. just stuff that was said, right? But more importantly, let's say that it did mean something. Does that actually fundamentally change the situation? So, and this is a Carl Schmitt thing, right? Like, so let's say that they did mean all of those things and they did do that. Still, when there are protests to overthrow a liberal democratic government, the police still come and crush them. Yep. And what that means is that liberal democracies in themselves are the dictatorship of liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. And the police are there to impose that sovereignty. Right. Mm-hmm. What we do is we choose the dictators within that. Right. But that is inherent in all states. Liberal democratic states try to pretend that it is not. Other states don't try to pretend that it is not. Right. Yeah. The reality it's like is outright. That- you're we're a dictatorship. Take it or leave yeah. it. Here it's like there's a gaslighting of like, but you're actually free. Yes. Yeah. And in reality, the police are there to impose the will of those that claim sovereignty. Yep. Right. Therefore, they are occupying our space in their service. They're necessarily occupiers. See, and we don't make this choice. Like when I was born in this place called Kenya, which by the way, made up by a white dude, um, no one asked me, hey Marcella. Do you want to be like this place in this place called Kenya? Like, do you want a choice? We don't get to opt in out of states. We're born and we're forced to live in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a text I um, have read that I really like the term, but it was called armed inclusion. Right. We're not just part of it without choice. We're forced to be. Right. We can't just leave. Absolutely. Because everything is a state. And so there's no outside. Everything. There's no outside. That's why I always tell my dad I'm going to run away. And he's like, where? There's nowhere to run. Like, nowhere. <laughs> yeah. Everything is a zone of conflict. There's no outside. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say I recently saw a Trump at a at a rally talking about how if he's reelected, he's going to um, push for more, like, summary executions of, quote, drug dealers. Of course, I think we all know what that means Uh, but i mean as we're discussing i mean that's pretty much already the you know the modus operandi of the police already it just it's just fascinating that like there's so many politicians like oh no we need actually more of this because that will actually be the thing that (laughs) makes us safer and then there's a lot of people that buy into that like the police actually aren't violent enough there's not enough police killings even though there's literally thousands of people dying I mean, A, those are people who've never had their asses beat by the police. If you've had the cops beat your ass, there's no way you're like, mm, we need more of that. B, the only thing about Trump is that he just said the, he says the quiet parts out loud. You know what I mean? Like, that's mm-hmm. what, like, he, when he says drug dealers substitute that for black people, everybody knows what he means. But like, 
that's what this country runs on. Like Biden is the same. Like, what does he want to put like a hundred thousand more police officers in the streets? Um, Like, and then he like puts on that fake, like we forgive 6,500 people for weed. And then like, turns out it's zero. Like it's like this whole like pretense of like, we're nice. But then they say like the thing about the Democrats, like they have to play wink, wink to both white people and other groups Mm -hmm. of people. So they have to say the whole, Ooh, violence let's get him but also oh we get it we're racist let's get you out of prison it's like they're like they have to play both parts meanwhile trump doesn't right he's straight mm-hmm. up racist he doesn't have to pretend like he cares it's like desantis and his other evil twin what's his name abba like they all mm-hmm. like yeah they don't have to play nice they could be jerks yeah there's there's a kind of weird honesty to it almost, yeah because right but the, it's like the people who vote for trump want him to say it yeah yeah. Well, and it's interesting, you know, like they there was this like, well, Donald Trump says and how it is kind of like thing in 2016, even though very obviously he doesn't ever actually say it how it is. Like he lies no. constantly, like obsessively. But that's not the point. Like, it's not about the information. It's about the, the approach, the delivery, the mentality like that's The cruelty. It's really the cruelty. That's exactly it's the vibe. It's, it's the about vibe. The cruelty, the cruelty the is vibe. the point. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. like they are so mean like it feels like it's like almost like kids in like the playground trying to figure out who's the meanest and like it's like a race to the bottom of for cruelty with these people like the, the republicans you're like how mean can we get like doesn't it feel like that now it's not like and like with uh desantis now like trying to go after people for like voting what is it um voter fraud there was a investigation they just uh released that like um i think out of 19 people <laughs> they've gone after recently, like 13 have been black and 12 of them are people that are former, formerly incarcerated that should have the right to vote now. And they voted and they're being arrested for voting. I mean, I just like the sophistication of like the fascism is like on point with this one, like straight <laughs> up, just like, just like, you know, the fact that he like, mo- like 16 16- of the people who were arrested were black. He's, they're obviously trying to intimidate black people from voting. Oh, yeah. Like, yep. it's like, it's like a bad episode of like the Godfather. I don't know, like Godfather four, but it sucks because they, they're not good <laughs> at what they do or something. I don't know. It's like, you know what I mean? It's like this mob mentality, but they like don't know what they're doing and they're yeah. bad at it. I mean, that's like, what is the entire January 6th committee except winding back the whole way that they didn't know how to do the thing that they were trying to do. And it's like, it's astonishing. And it's when you really look at it, I think the scariest part about all of that um, isn't the bumbling. It's actually the fact that the bumbling was only part of what was happening, that there was actually something coherent going on, right? At least in concept that in theory could have worked if we make a bunch of political assumptions that aren't true, but it, there was a plan. It was just them Bad. executing it. Yeah, it was just them executing. <laughs> the plan was fine. It was just them executing it. Right? Yeah, like, like when Rudy not- Giuliani is executing your coup, like you know you got it's issues. Not gonna feel like how you want it to go. It's not gonna be like it's not gonna be a good product launch. This is gonna be like <laughs> you're not even gonna make launch. It's gonna die in QA. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, before we move on, I do want to say that we went from talking about the police killing mostly black people and not reporting it to talking about Trump uh, 
uh, uh, Trump being bad at coups, which just goes to show you that everything in this country that happens bad is literally related to racism. So if you want bad things to stop happening, you have to stop that. Like, we're not going to. That's it. That's it. That's all I want to say. Yeah. Colonialism kind of is the DNA of the American. Yeah. Everything bad is happening because this country is built on bad things. Just just. Yeah. Yeah, it's not a part of the DNA. It just is the DNA. Yeah, anything whack that happens, just be like, and somebody asks you, why is this happening? Just say it's because of racism. Because it, it, it is. <laughs> Somewhere it is. down the line, it very obviously is. <laughs> well, speaking of the DNA, <laughs> we're going to be talking about this controversy that has ripped through the L.A. City Council, causing numerous folks to resign. There's been big protests at City Council in Los Angeles, uh, riot police have been called out. There's been protests outside of um, various city council members' homes that have been involved in this. You've probably seen this on the news, but essentially something leaked from 2021 uh, around meetings about redistricting, and it showed uh, Latino leaders making anti-black and anti-indigenous comments about their constituency and supposedly the people they represent. And it's just caused this huge, massive blowback, especially at a time when uh, there's numerous scandals taking place. Uh, the police are dealing with folks constantly calling them out for all of these various gangs within the Los Angeles Police Department and the Sheriff's Department. Uh, if you want to know more about that, we actually did an interview with the journalist that broke that story. So you can check that out. But yeah, this is a bombshell for sure. Yeah, absolutely a bombshell. And I'll say it and I'll, I said it before. I said it before and I'll say it again. The most interesting thing to me about just like leading about reading about the amount of corruption in LA is that they're racist, but they also steal. Like, you know what I mean? Like they are absolutely racist. Like Martinez <laughs> came out like extremely racist. And then I dig in and I found out this council member, Mark Ridley Thomas was like making deals with like USC to like give them, he gave them money and they paid for his campaign distribution um, no, no, he's he, they contributed to his campaign. And the part of this that gets me is that they gave him full tuition and paid call, gave him his son full tuition. So it's like you have somebody being racist over here and you have somebody trying to like score deals with his position in office. And it's like the combination. I feel like L.A. is like pretty much what America is. People are racist and they're racist to get money. You know, it's like this. I don't know if that made sense, but to me, it's just like wild, like that this city is so rampant with corruption and it's all come out. But to me, it's just like a representative of like how this country works. Like the people up top are very racist. They use their positions for power. And then third of all, they're not even good about hiding their like malfeasance because yeah. they, they don't care because they think we're too stupid to know or find out stupid is not the word they think we're not going to know they think we're not going to find out and they're probably right because there's too much and I just want to eat gushers and take a nap so I get it but <laughs> it's a lot happening here yeah. and it's just a representation to me LA is like blow that up and it's the American government just because you don't know <laughs> doesn't mean it's not happening <laughs> yeah yeah I mean this is like the story just keeps going Right. Like, I think the thing that's astonishing to me about this, each individual thing that happened here. Yeah, that happens in American politics. Right. And it's like messed up and something that occurs. And, you know, we were talking about this before the show. 
before we start recording, like one of the things that has recently changed in American politics now is that nothing that anyone says ever dies. And so you could say something like this 10 years ago and still people are going to hear about it now. And so I think a lot of what's happening is we're starting to actually archive our presence moments and in the process kind of getting a better understanding of the historical trajectory that we're on and why. Um, just because we're able to record this stuff down, right? And so yeah. something like this, you can start to like look at a city like Los Angeles, which as you were saying, like is the American dream, right? Like literally Los Angeles was the city that really created the, the modern concept of highways in America that really created the subdivision and the suburb that is the home of the movie and the music industries, right? Like LA is the American dream, literally, you know, from top to bottom. And it is also the American dream in the sense that it is there to conceal a really ugly reality in that some of this stuff that's happening in L.A., you expect to hear about this happening in place like Chicago or Cleveland or Youngstown or something like that, which is like places that are notoriously corrupt. Right. You'd expect to hear that. And Los Angeles always has this sort of aura about itself of sort of glitz and this ability to kind of be above the sort of like, quote, dirty masses, right? And kind of like have this kind of like cultural elitism to it, right? Mm -hmm. And what we're watching is the people that are representative of that cultural elitism. This is what they do to uphold that. Mm -hmm. They get bribes from universities. They get kickdowns for their water departments. They, I mean, some of these scandals are just like it's obvious like things. Obvious basic stuff too. It's like basic. It's like, yeah. and then they gave you fifteen thousand dollars. It's like, why? You have more money than that. Why are you doing that? Yeah, like exactly, stop. exactly. <laughs> well, and then on top of it all, on top of it all, um, there's the whole story about gangs in the police department, right? And so, like, we have not only. I mean, we all know that cops are a gang, right? I think like anybody that's ever dealt yeah. with the police department in a city knows that cops are a gang and they operate that way. Right. Um, but again, in L.A., it just becomes really obvious. Right. And it's just like everything else in America just dialed up a little bit or at least dialed up aesthetically a little bit. Like this isn't the worst corruption, say, monetarily that we've ever heard of. But wow, is it bad? Yeah. I mean, just the stories themselves are just over the top. Just like I couldn't even imagine people acting this way in elected office at all. And I come from a place where corruption's endemic, right? Um, it's astonishing. It's absolutely yeah, astonishing. It really is. Can I put my conspiracy hat on real quick? Yeah, I'm a comedian. <laughs> I'm not a journalist. Just take this with a <laughs> take this with a grain of fucking salt. Take it and like I and I'll take my conspiracy hat on and I'll be like, wow, that was Marcella, you went down the deep hole. That was wild and messed up. Okay. So I'm gonna start off with just like this. So if you if you have not read this rap sheet of like all this corruption coming from starting from real estate developers, getting people into college power, like uh, uh, in terms of like energy. If you haven't read this, the L.A. City Council has been up to a lot of stuff. OK, <laughs> they've been out there. They've been putting themselves out, committing crimes, getting money, getting houses, getting their kids into school, whatever. Right. And the part of it that really trips me out is that I think literally every single politician is doing this. Mm -hmm. I, I for one second do not think that these people who we vote for and literally never do what we want them to do because they don't because it's not their job. I don't think people who will lie to you 
to your face to tell you that they work for you when they know they don't work for you are being honest and they're dealing with other things. Mm-hmm. I just want to say that whoever did investigate the L.A. City Council, I need you to put the work and investigate everybody else because I know they're <laughs> I'm not saying it's OK. I'm just saying is that if we truly found out, like if we, if the people in L.A. now are rioting as they should be, I'm a comedian. Ha ha ha. Jokes. Um, they're like rioting. And if we knew the extent to which, like, how bad our governments are, like, they have to be. Think about this. They're controlling a group of people, and they tr- they trick us every day into doing something that we don't want to do, which is to sell our freedom to them to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't think they're doing this stuff? Of course they are. Anyway, I'm going to take my conspiracy hat off. <laughs> I put it back on and I'm going to take it off. And and I'll just say that this is what happens when you have a complete and total hierarchy. That's never going to change. These They're doing it. They're all doing it. Mm-hmm. And I'm happy that somebody's writing about L.A., but can you please write about, I don't know, Temple, Texas? That's where I'm from, and I don't <laughs> like them. Somebody just dig up that information. I guess at the end of the day, I'm saying is that, like, this is all true in L.A., but I want you all to understand that this is literally happening everywhere. And, like, we have to do something. The people who are running the show are not doing a good job, and that's why things are bad. Yeah, what's, again, astonishing about this is politicians have come up with ways to do all this stuff without it looking shady. Uh (laughs) Campaign donations, super PACs, like, what is this? Except, I mean, we all can see the one-to-one relationship between voting behavior and campaign donations. Like, that's been made obvious for decades. And that's still not considered bribery. Because there's a little legal nuance that makes it not bribery because there's not a direct exchange of money. It's, but what is that? That's, that is a literal difference in terminology, but not a difference in spirit, right? It's a way to get around saying that what you're doing is overtly corrupt. And yet in LA, they didn't even do that. They just did the <laughs> corrupt thing. Like that's the part that's incredible to me. Like instead of getting $15,000 in a suitcase, you get someone to pay for you to go to a conference in the Bahamas. Duh. That's what everybody does. And yeah. yet here it's like they did it in the dumbest, most obvious way possible. I mean, it's like, it's really, and remember Eric Garcetti, the mayor of LA, right? Who his own office has a lot of issues, a lot of tie-ins with this stuff was one of the front runners for the democratic nomination in 2024. Oh my goodness. Yep. They've been I talking mean- about the candidate for years, years. Wow. Well, it goes to show you. Well, you know one thing? At least they were honest. At least now we know. <laughs> right? They were, like, so bad at it. It was almost honest. There's a really good article um, in the New Republic from somebody that co-founded the L.A. Tenants Union, which is part of the Autonomous Tenants Union uh, network across the U.S. that's really fantastic. I just wanted to quote from it really quick. Uh, they write, what the officials said was right, has rightfully stirred outrage, but they deserve more criticism for what they were doing at the chime. Gerrymandering council districts to explicitly undermine the power of tenants. At bottom, the scandal reveals not a racial or ethnic alliance as much as an alliance between the state and real estate. It's easy to see the council members deliberate, uh, gerrymandering as an attack on a progressive opponent. It was equally an attack on the people they disparaged, uh, that they called dark, little, shoeless, ugly, those from the, quote, village and those with nowhere to, quote, shit. Uh, they go on to say, forcing tenants from their homes as rent surge, the council's policies uh, exasperate decades of state-sanctioned displacement by which black and brown communities are not just shuffled but removed from the city altogether. 
Finally, the council increased the budget staff and powers of the police department while disproportionately targeting, harassing, and murdering black and brown people. Uh, the tape is a candid portrait of the democratic machine in a one-party state. Politicians leverage their power to court financial speculation at the expense of the residents they claim to serve. Wow. Absolutely. I literally have nothing to add except for that. Yeah, of course. We live in a one-party state. So, yeah, that's why you're acting all type of – think about it. If you were the only – like, yeah. I guess it's like one of the things that I always say. If you took everything that the United States was doing and then, you, as you said, put it on Canada, everybody would be like, oh, the United States government, like, oh, Canada, it's so messed up. Yeah. You know? They yeah. would have – maybe the United States should invade itself. <laughs> well, and what's this – again, like – Actually, no, back. because that's still going to be bad. Never mind. I thought that through. Not a good idea. I take it back. Please continue. I keep coming back to, like, the parts of this that are just amazing to me. And, like, okay, what were they trying to achieve? Well, obviously, sort of gentrification on steroids, right? Mm-hmm. In New York, they just did broken windows policing, right? Yeah. Like, and, and what, did, what happened to all of those people, all of those council people? They became consultants for the real estate industry. They got jobs on corporate boards. They did all this. Again, they took their kickback later, right? They waited until they were out of office to get paid. And then they got paid in a way that looks legit. And here, it's, I mean, it's like comically corrupt. I mean, it's comically corrupt. It's like, it's like dudes with top hats and suits, like three piece suits and big guts, like sucking down like dollars corrupt, right? Like early 20th century caricature of capitalists corrupt, right? It, it's really mind blowing. And it just goes to show, again, LA is a city run by the Democratic Party. Yep. Right? Yep. right. Just like the one I live in, just like Chicago, just, just like Philadelphia, like New York. just well, like New York, like all of these incredibly corrupt places. They're all run by Democrats. Right. Oh, my God. And are what are these people the- doing? They're using their entitlement to kick out the people that their party claims to speak for. Mm-hmm. Right. How cynical can you really be? I mean, it's I- incredibly messed up. I mean, I think what the Democrats are super counting on, which we'll see this with like the bullshit of like, we're going to forgive student loans right before the midterm comes, right? I think what the Democrats are truly counting on is because, again, it is a one party state, are counting on the fact that the Republicans are so bad. Yeah. And that's why, and that's why I will argue this, these stunts. It's like the WWE. These stunts right before the midterm elections are very well calculated. The Republicans are like, they huddle together like, okay, guys. We're going to be as mean as possible. Okay, well, we're going to do, we're going to kidnap immigrants and we're going to send them over to New York. We're going to do that. And then it's like fucked up, right? And somebody's like, yeah, that's really fucked up. Maybe we shouldn't do that. And they're like, no, 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 that's great. We'll do it. And then the Democrats are like, and then what we're going to do after y'all do that, we're going to come out and we're going to be like, that's pretty bad, right? We're going to forgive two people's student loans. <laughs> the joke yeah. like and yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. it's like literally the republicans will do something truly awful and that's mm-hmm. why the democrats in la are behaving like this because they literally think that because people have been because i think americans obsession with sports is pretty much linked to their obsession with political parties too people don't actually care about the substance it's just like i'm team democrats i'm team republicans what like the la city council i think is like hoping for is that like People are just like such huge Democrat fans that they're all willing to overlook this because, again, a lot of times you people have not been taught to do anything beyond voting. Mm-hmm. So when they think see things are bad, 
It's like you, the only tool you give somebody is a hammer. They're going to try to hammer everything. And they're going to be like, why am I hammering it? And it's like breaking things. It's like, yeah, that's all they have. And so as long as people think that elections is all they have to change things, the Democrats are going to do whatever they want. Because yeah. guess what? Are you going to take us who will at least forgive one of you student loans? Or are you going to take these other people who, yeah. you know, we don't need to say what they're going to do because you've already seen it. Yeah. And I know like in the place I live, um, that is the entire way that they stay in power. Like it's unthinkable to vote Republican <laughs> where I live just because of unions. It's just unthinkable. Like you just never would do it. It's voting for the comical capitalist, right? Like literally. Mm-hmm. So what happens is Democrats have total impunity, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like that, that's why the corruption occurs. That's why the kickback schemes in the seventies happen. That's why the corruption around the building of housing projects in the city. Like all of that was all internal Democratic Party money politics, you know? And so at the point where the Republicans are so awful, because that's not a fiction, <laughs> right? Like they're legitimately fascists, like they're mm-hmm. terrible. Um, and there's a reason people would never even consider voting for them because they view them as an existential threat to their safety, right? As I, most yeah. people that I live around do. They view them as an existential threat to their safety. And so without actually hitting the streets, without really shutting this down without really actually impacting the functionality of a city government like this, uh, that's your only mechanism. Like that's our only mechanism in, in places like this where we do. I mean, as, as a person from tenants union said, live in a one party state and not even in the sense that Democrats and Republicans are the same. Like there are a lot of us that literally live in one party states. Like the place I live is a one party state. Mm. I mean, the New Dem- York kind of. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's so, and in New York, it's interesting because the one party is neither Republican or Democrat. It's moderate. It's just hateful. I mean, I'm, <laughs> it's not a party. Like a weird pro-capitalist, <laughs> like moderate <laughs> politics. It's strange, like Bloomberg, right? Like people like yeah. this. Um, but yeah, when Democrats have told impunity like this, even I mean, I mean, I'm even talking to people that are listening to the show that are more moderate than us. Right. Yeah. Like at the point where things like this are going on. The reason that these are going on has to do the reason this is going on has to do with the lack of contestation. Right. Yeah. And also they're not scared of us. Yes, exactly. Exactly. They don't have any accountability mechanism. Why would they? Right. What do they have to worry about? They get to keep their job until they retire, regardless of what happens. Well, let's move on to the last segment. Uh, We've already talked about some of this stuff. We're going to be talking about sort of how the culture war is playing out on quote both sides uh we've already talked about how biden has sort of like dangled in front of everybody uh supposedly this promise that they will codify abortion rights into law of course you know we've heard that before this of course is if they expand uh the seats they have in the senate and the house in the upcoming midterms uh biden has also as other people brought up said that he was going to pardon people uh with federal charges for weed of course there's actually nobody um that's in federal lockup from my understanding just with weed charges right now. Uh, there's been different people have thrown that out there that actually no one's in prison for that. So it's not actually going to free anybody. It might, uh, it might show up on the record that they got a pardon, but even that to my understanding will not actually help anybody. Like it's still going to be on their record that they, you know, were arrested. Also, there's been a recent scandal about, a lot of people that before thought they were going to get uh, student loan forgiveness, it turns out that many of the borrowers that were hoping to get that loan forgiveness won't actually qualify. 
This is like thousands and thousands of people. So a lot of the stuff that Biden has kind of like put forward that a lot of liberals were just like super excited about in terms of like, you know, dark brand and all that shit is just totally not come to fruition. Meanwhile, uh, all this other stuff is going on. Some of the stuff I want to get into is this kind of continued wave of anti-trans, anti-LGBT stuff that's continuing to play out. In Idaho right now, they're trying to construct and ultimately put into legislation a bill that would ban, quote, drag events in public. And one of the things what? they're using as justification is a doctored far-right video that's basically manipulated to make it look like a drag performer is exposing their genitals to um, a minor in the audience, which was not true didn't happen and actually the person that's the victim of that doctored video is actually suing the troll for defamation right now but kind of on that same vein republicans in the house now are putting forth this bill that's um designed to ironically uh defund any sort of public institution that takes federal funds if they talk about you know pride or display display like the rainbow flag or anything associated with LGBTQ people. So we can get into it. Uh, one of the things we were kind of debating back and forth before we started recording is like, is this going to help the Republicans? I mean, they seem to really be obsessed with the fact that like, this is the only thing that matters right now is, you know, making LGBTQ people's lives harder. Um, and they seem to really be doubling down on that. It seems to be like they saw what happened with abortion and they want to continue to deliver to their base, which continues to be like just far right maniacs that are obsessed with what other people do. Yeah, it's it's a strange strategy, right? Um, and we can see statistically why it's a strange strategy. Like what they're doing, or at least what a loud faction of the Republican Party is doing, um, is going as extreme as they can, right? Remember, this was the political party that five years ago was the quote party of free speech. <laughs> now talking about polling funding from any institution that flies a rainbow flag, right? Like I how the mighty have fallen, how the masks have come off, right? Like it is all very obvious now. And I think what is interesting is as that mask gets ripped off further, their support falls. Uh-huh. And in a lot of these races, so let's let's take Ohio, right? Like the Ohio Senate race is a really classic example of this because what you have is you have J.D. Vance, who is like a far right wing Trump endorsed Republican who's funded by Peter Thiel. And is a tech millionaire running against a labor Democrat who's like <laughs> from a union town, you know? And so you want to talk about like the two sides of the state of Ohio, right? Like Rust Belt labor people and like right wing farmers, right? Like it's really weird. Um, JD Vance has gone as far as to say that he wants to outlaw divorce. Oh, God. Like in the 19th century style, like outlaw, like when you get married, you're just married for life, like regardless of what's going on, right? Like, those kinds of things outlawing just like Trump control. has been married for life. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. All three times. Um, Just like, you know, outlawing birth control, like these kinds of things, they're doing it because it gives them something. It riles up a base, but that base is shrinking. And so you look at a state like Ohio and this is where we're really going to see something potentially interesting happen Um, because in Ohio, Elections are decided by the suburbs of Cleveland and Columbus, primarily, right? Uh, the, the outer ring suburbs. So the further out, wealthier suburbs of those cities um, kind of flip between Democrat and Republican. They're kind of like moderate areas, right? And this has mm-hmm. been the case for decades. Um, a 
Trump lost in those areas in 2020 and won in those areas in 2016, right? Even though he won the state of Ohio in total, he lost the core areas that he had, he needed to hold on to. And then it really came down to like turnout. Um, what's happening right now is as Vance goes further and further and further into the culture war stuff, his support drops mm. because those suburbanites who are sitting out there also, though they may view themselves as moderate, view themselves as reasonable. They view themselves as not racist. They view themselves as accepting other people for difference. Right. They view themselves as kind of culturally progressive or culturally liberal, even if they're economically conservative. That's kind of a common refrain you hear in those areas. Right. Um, those people are not going to vote for J.D. Vance. Because if they vote for J.D. Vance and their friends find out they voted for J.D. Vance, none of their friends will talk to them anymore. But they, don't have to tell, but they don't have to tell their friends who they voted for. Yeah, but it is that social pressure does actually mean something. And what what we've seen is as the Ohio Republican Party goes further and further to the right. Support in those areas drops further and further and further. Okay. That's important because it's also a national trend. And so when these culture war things emerge, what you're really seeing, okay, let's take abortion. They're talking to 30% of the population. Literally, they're talking to 30% of the population. Let's take something like outlawing flying the rainbow flag. They're talking to even less than that. Right? They're relitigating culture war issues they lost 20 years ago. And that's all they've got left. And so what's happening, I think, is interesting. You've got one faction of the Republican Party saying this is the only way that we hold on to power at all ever, because demographically we are going to lose power in the very near future. And so we have to take power now and enshrine it and hold on to it at all costs. And mm -hmm. to do that, we have to go as extreme as possible, because that's what's getting us attention. That's what's winning. You have another faction who's very quietly sitting aside and letting that burn itself out. Um, because what might happen very likely is that the MAGA faction of the Republican Party might cost the Republican Party the Senate. Because there are three key races that are going to determine the Senate. All of them involve Trump-endorsed Republicans. All of those Trump-endorsed Republicans are losing. I just want to go back to this uh, this national bill that they're talking about. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is pretty sweeping. Uh, yeah. This is yeah, from... I the Independent has a pretty good write-up. It says um, it could be used to strip federal funds from public schools, libraries, or hospitals that recognize Pride Month, host popular drag queen story hours, or make any mention of LGBTQ plus people. The way they're defining it is uh, hosting any sexually oriented discussions, materials, or events. Of course, we all know that that will be weaponized and it'll only be certain sexually oriented, whatever that means, sexually oriented. Um, and the definition of sexually oriented broadly encompasses any topic that involves gender identity, gender dysphoria, transgenderism, sexual orientation, or related uh, subjects. Um, and I just think it's hilarious to point out, of course, that they're essentially threatening these institutions that people rely on every single day with massive amounts of defunding for essentially acknowledging that a section of the population actually exists and has always existed. And they're saying, we're going to defund you if you do this. Yeah. I mean, the only part of the only, like uh, the only silver lining, it's not really a silver lining. It's like, maybe they'll defund the police too. Cause they're in pride. Month. <laughs> but um, obviously we don't like it's gross. This is really, really, really messed up. That's not a joke that I meant to make. I really regret that joke. Please strike it from my existence. Um, the part that I wanted, I do, I'm glad you brought this up. So I, I ran into this, uh, this, this statistic like a week ago where it said most Republicans support declaration of the United States as a Christian nation. Have y'all seen this? 61% of Republicans. Yeah. Um, no. So this is 
I I want to I want to believe so badly that like people will hear this 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 like rampant transphobia which by the way the reason why I talk about transphobia so much is because the people who are killed the most as a result of transphobia is black women right yeah. like these are the women who are already dealing with like racism um they're already dealing with misogyny and now they're dealing with like transphobia right so like when I always want to tie this. I'm going to tie this right, right back to racism, right? So you have these laws that are essentially going after the most vulnerable people, right? Um, trans, trans, you know, queer, uh, uh, gay, but specifically, I want to talk about specifically trans black women. This is, these are the people who are already literally dying. Like I believe 60% of women who, um, trans women who are murdered are black trans women, right? So these are already people who are already the most vulnerable. And you're going to pass this national law that already is racist and sexist towards them that now turns even more additional state violence on them, which like already exists, right? So that is deeply scary to me because when I think about like these laws that are essentially fascist, I always think about like, who is this going to impact the most? And as a result, like, what does this reflect about this law? And also what does this reflect about the United States of America, right? I don't know, like, it's hard. Like, just like knowing that so many black women die and somebody's going to pass a law to make that happen even more is just deeply like frustrating to me. And at the point where the state declares war on you, yeah, what do you do except to fight back? I mean, like, that's the yeah. only option left. Now, I think the one silver lining that I think we can take away a bit from the situation we find ourselves in is that people have started to find their voice in fighting back. Yeah. We've been seeing this for the last, like, four or five years. Like, there really has been this, like, significant uptake, especially in certain areas of the country where, like, social movements have had significant political effects, right, on a local level. Um, Absolutely. That is ultimately what protects us from this, right? Mm -hmm. Laws don't do crap. The cops obviously don't do crap. Democrats aren't going to save us. And so, like, what's left? Well, we learned that in the streets in 2020, right? We keep it safe. We keep us safe, right? This is what's left. Like, if everything is attacking us, then what do we have? We have this, right? Now, luckily, yeah. that this is also our autonomy, right? Yeah. So it's a thing to fight for. It's not just a reality to recognize, but it's becoming increasingly not just the thing that people believe in. It's becoming a necessity to destroy the state. It has to become a necessity because if you think about it also, is that like we want to talk about. Like, so let's talk about like the ability for you to write a law yeah. and use the vessels of like a, the, the most powerful state in existence to pass murder, essentially, right? That, to me, is a testament that systems should not exist. No one should have the power to write laws that kill people and then have an enforcing body, which goes to the police, right, to be able to do that. Like, anything that can be used in mass to harm so many people should not exist. Yeah, and what are we being offered, right? I mean, like, what are the Democrats really saying in this whole situation? (laughs) It's like, yo, so... We've just been in power for two years and did nothing. So, you know, you should vote for us. So we'll not do the things that we said we were going to do two years ago. Right. I know. It's this ridiculous. Like we were talking about this before the show, you know, like Democrats and Republicans manifest this paradox in slightly different ways. Right. Like with Trump, it was America is collapsing. Everything's falling apart. Like the cities are on fire. And then four years later, he said the same thing, but he had just been in power for four years. So that's kind of a problem that he didn't fix it. And people did notice that. 
right? People did notice for the first People time ever. Because he wasn't hot. I'm telling you, Obama, yeah. lots of things slipped. People <laughs> didn't notice. They weren't focusing. They were like, he looks good in a suit and voice sounds great. People didn't pay attention. Biden, not hot. People are paying more attention. I'm telling you, I think mm-hmm. that if we're going to have presidents, we have to make sure they're not hot. I think that's one. <laughs> so no more Kennedys? No, we can't have any hot people in office, period. Because when hot people start talking, I mean, the goal is honestly to abolish hotness itself. But before we get there, we just cannot have hot people talking in politics because people don't pay attention. They're just like, Ugh. like AOC, very hot. No one cares what she's doing now. People know, right? were like, they saw her on the border. She looked hot. They saw Obama. He looked hot in a suit. They're like, whatever you're saying, you see people are like, they're leftists. They're great. I'm like, they haven't done anything. People still believe Obama's great. Why do you think that? Yeah. Why? Yeah. Just well, this is what Democrats do. They come forward and they go, vote for us and we'll do all these great things. And we will stop the Republicans from doing these awful things. And then it doesn't <laughs> at all. Neither thing happens. No, and they say every two years. <laughs> and then the worst thing is that not only are they not doing the thing that they're going to say, they're actually hurting you. Like yeah, they're actually yeah. doing the opposite. <laughs> like it's not like when somebody, it's like, it's, it's, it would be great if they were just like, they got there and they actually didn't do anything. But the worst part is that they are still doing stuff. It's just the opposite of what you told them to do. When you're like, stop giving rich people money, they're like, give rich people money. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's like the. Uh, well, and I think what people need to realize here is that what's happening is that Democrats and Republicans are kind of playing a slightly different game here. Right. Mm-hmm. So the Democrats are telling us what they want us to hear, even though they have absolutely no intention of doing it. Right. Yeah. But yeah. the Republicans are telling us what they're going to do. And they're going to do it. And that's the thing about and they're going to do it. They're going to follow through. Yeah, they will. You know why? Because Democrats and the Republicans want the same thing. They want the same thing. So that's why whenever the Republicans are like, we're going to do this really bad, bad stuff. And the Democrats are like, actually, we don't really think you should. But then when they get into office, the Democrats are like, I mean, maybe we should like meet you halfway. So it won't be that bad. It'll be like half as bad. So that's fine. See, guys, we stopped them from doing the really bad thing. Now it's like half as bad. Like, that's how they play us. Yeah, absolutely. And again. They assume that people are going to comply with that because what else are they going to do? Vote Republican? And right? also the best. Yeah. And they might not even notice, which is why this L.A. thing is like, I want to know the type of investigative journalism that they have there and why <laughs> is it, it's not everywhere else. I know. This is right? why I want to know. Uh, Man, investigative journalists in L.A. are so good. <laughs> yeah. I was like, can we like we need like clone them, send them around the globe. Let's figure it out. They, you know what? They might bring anarchism immediately. Like, I think it's like, just, just, just have them. If you ever wanted to know. Oh my gosh. But it's like, it's always like stuff like this that, that I always worry. It's like, we have all this information and then like, what are we going to do about it? Like, I'm happy that people are protesting, but what does that mean? Right? Like, are we going to ask for changes? Especially with like this, transphobic like straight up like what happens if that thing goes to a vote what do we do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like what like what are we gonna do because yeah. voting is not what are we gonna vote like after they've made it illegal for you to be a trans black woman like after you like said that black women can't be women like when it would because the, the thing that with the transphobia if you haven't seen it in sports which is how it's gonna reflect in the mm-hmm. future is that black mm-hmm. women have never been considered to be women right because if you think about it gender is constructed and if you live in a settler state what women has always meant white women right mm-hmm. so like even if you look at the, the the trans bands in sports the next step is always after to come black 
have to come black, uh, come after black women in sports. And that's why it's no surprise that black trans women are the most murdered women is because black women are generally not protected and a just never perceived to be women. They don't deserve the same protections. They're not viewed as having or being like, you know what I mean? And that's why when we're talking about transphobia, it's very dangerous because this is going to hurt cis and trans women, mm-hmm. black women, mm-hmm. period, very badly. And I, yeah, this is, I'm, I'm sorry I brought it up again, but like, and I'm emphatic about it. I'm not making jokes because this is like, y'all, this is dangerous. This is war. I mean, they are waging war on us. Like that this is literally is dangerous. What is yeah. This is incredibly dangerous. I think there would be massive, uh, protests if that went through i mean would that have any hope of even passing through congress uh i don't know if it matters i mean so like the point of bills like this and you know you see this with uh republican attempts to pass abortion bans before the supreme court ruling right there was no hope ever that those things were ever going to pass court review that wasn't the point the point was that it was signaling state intent Mm-hmm. Right. And so what's happening here is the state is now telling a significant portion of the population that, well, you know, maybe it'd just be better if y'all were dead. Straight or up. Just disappeared completely. Up. Which yeah. is the same thing as dead, right? Like, we'll disappear, yeah. you send you back into the shadows because it's not safe for you to be outside. Exactly. And so even if it never passes Congress, even if it passes Congress, gets shot down in the Supreme Court, it doesn't matter. Because the cultural implications, the cultural reverberations yep. of doing exactly. that are actually the point. You know, we were okay. talking about this. We were talking about Florida uh, a couple months ago. I think one of the things I said was if we really look at what the brown shirts did, their impact was not in gaining power through law. Their goal was to make the social existence of certain classes of people impossible. Yep. And by doing that, they were going to remake Germany. What else is going on here except that? It's a vibe. They're trying to create a vibe. It's like when you get like a vanilla scented candle in your apartment, you like, it's like, it's going to make your apartment smell like vanilla, even if there's no vanilla. It's like, like the law. It's like you try to pass this law. It's like publicity. It's like for you to like publicize, like it's like publicity for your hate. Like, and then it's like to get on and then it makes it socially acceptable because the thing is like things that are unsaid, people don't know that other people are, are as, as cruel and bad. But if somebody wants somebody voices it, let alone somebody with power that empowers other people with these shitty ideas to come out. And so maybe it's not a law, but OK, so the amount of black women being murdered goes up. Right. Um, which is already like a problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, and like, for, the, for the Republicans, mission accomplished. Right. Yeah. And the part about it that's like so scary, y'all, is that like this is essentially when you pass bills like this and it, it, it doesn't go through the state, it's you're deputizing the civilians to do the work of that bill. Exactly. It's like you're deputizing people to do that work because you're saying, okay, so our bill wasn't passed. Some people liked it. Yeah, let's just do it. But like the state can't do it. But like, you know, the state and also the same thing. So like, yeah. I think um, we would see lots of resistance to this. I mean, we've seen massive. Yeah, I mean, we've seen massive walkouts uh, in different states to all of this proposed legislation, and that remains ongoing. I think if this was, if they tried to do something like this nationally, like a don't say gay bill nationally, this would definitely set off a nationwide thing for sure. Young people especially are not having this, you know. They're not. Can I be a jerk for a moment? But like, what are we going to do? See, this is this is always my question. OK, so there's massive protests. But when do we hit the inflection point where it moves past that? What are because we gonna at do? some point we've been in the streets now for, you know, 
the better part of 25 years, more or less nonstop in the United States. And I was it on the streets on Saturday, like outside somebody's yeah. house. Like, we're tired of yelling at y'all. Jesus, right. I want to have a picnic on a Saturday and not yell at you. Like, and, and at some point, we just need to force it to change. Right. There's no other real. Right. But I think I think out of this, I think one of the big things, just like what happened out of the George Floyd uprising, was that you have now a massive crisis in policing where they can't hire enough police and no one wants to be a cop. I think something like this would definitely for a new generation of young people show that the state is not this progressive thing that enshrines rights and protects people, but instead is this repressive apparatus that actively is attacking whole communities of people. And obviously we already know that to be true, but I think that would just make it clear for a whole new generation of zoomers that probably weren't around during George Floyd um, or, you know, were too young, uh, which I think would be a big deal. And it would definitely radicalize a whole new generation of folks. And I think that would just accelerate, you know, the radicalization of a lot of young people in understanding that the state is not this neutral arbiter of, you know, freedom and democracy, but instead this repressive apparatus. And maybe from there, maybe they'll view it that like the state doesn't give you rights. It can only take away rights. I mean, Obama is the reason why I am where I am now. So <laughs> I do see a lot of just more middle of the road, like progressive and liberal types like this being a real big thing for a lot of folks. Yeah. You know, the idea that like a hospital or a school would get defunded because, you know, somebody yeah. has a pride flag up or something like that. Um, I just now saw on Twitter today that the education department of Florida is now saying that they will fire teachers if they violate like the uh, critical race theory rules or the don't say gay rules and all that stuff. So, I mean, it's definitely coming to a head, uh, you know, these kind of standoffs between, you know, the state and large bodies of people. This is also why you see the Republicans embracing authoritarianism overtly, right? That like in the past, they were able to hold their social positions, right? Their positions of entitlement and still have voting, <laughs> right? But now increasingly as they attack whole sections of the population, that's increasingly not possible. And I think what they're, again, what they're seeing is they're seeing this moment right now. People like Josh Howley have just directly talked about this where they have this moment to seize power and hold it. And if they don't do it right now, they never get to do it. Right. Yeah. And so if they're going to impose their will, which has always been their goal, increasingly at, at, and in imposing that will increasingly attack large numbers of people within the American population. Um, the only way that they are able to push that is if they control the police. And so again, we're back to the situation in which the occupation of police in our cities and in our neighborhoods becomes the only possible mechanism for these kinds of forms of social control to be implemented by the state. And so on some level, sure, it's a question of people with shitty politics, right? And people that are fascist but on another level, and probably more fundamentally, it is a question of living in a situation where we live amongst institutions that even make that kind of social repression possible to begin with. Yep. It's like, if somebody has the power to, like, do something really wild, like, turn off all the lights in the world, maybe no one should have that power. I think one of the roles that we have is just like on the last show we were recording, talking about how, you know, groups like Cooperation Jackson, in the face of the 
breaking down of infrastructure in uh, Jackson, Mississippi are building like water catchment systems and systems of mutual aid to respond. I mean, like we really need to put the idea into people's heads that instead of just simply protesting, asking those in power to not do this or please rethink this, or even like, if you do this, we will get in the streets or something like we need to physically be saying like, look, like we need to collectively shut this thing down and actually have something different as opposed to, these assholes telling us how to live and dictating our lives through force through yeah. the police um and also putting ideas out there you know like as more and more people um you know come up against this thing like we need things like general strikes we need massive mm-hmm. walkouts mm-hmm. to just like shut this thing down like we should like as we were joking before like when we started like why can't we just like walk out stop doing this and like shut this thing down yeah y'all if we stop doing this tomorrow, it's over. Mm-hmm. They need us for all this. You think they know how to work? They don't even like these people. Like they don't even know. Like if, if we we're gonna find out where their bunkers are because the people who built their bunkers told us where their bunkers are. Like you know what I mean? They don't know mm-hmm. anything. They don't do anything. We do everything. We're the ones running everything. When you go to work. Who's around you? There no Jeff Bezos doesn't deli- he doesn't even know where an Amazon warehouse is. I bet you Jeff Bezos doesn't even shop at Amazon. I guarantee you he doesn't. I'm gonna say it. He doesn't know where Amazon is. He doesn't know where anything is. These rich people don't even know where their clothes are because somebody else puts it on them. Like we run everything. And if we decide that we want to turn that running towards not dominating each other, which is what we've been told to do. Like since we were kids, we're like, who's going to win? Who's going to be first? Who's going to be last? If we stop dominating each other and do the opposite, which is caring for each other, which is what capitalism is like against is caring for each other. If we use all of our time for that, it's over. Mm-hmm. Like we don't, we, we have to stop participating in this. Like oh, there, there are a lot of cops, but they cannot force every, each and every single one of us to go to work. Yeah, we've been talking for a while. Once again, thanks for everybody coming on. Do you want to give us one more way that people can check out your stuff, Marcella? Yeah, I yeah, Marcella, you can find me on Field and News with Marcella on TikTok. You can find me on Field and News um, on Instagram and Field and News one on Twitter. It's one because nobody else, you know, somebody else already taken the other one. Um, sorry about that. Um, and I have a column on Shadow Mag um, that you can read. It's every week. Um, you can also subscribe to my newsletter, which is in the same place where the column is. Um, I hope that y'all enjoyed our little conversation. I love talking to these two people so much, and I'm happy to be back on once again. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.